Welcome to the second part of our two-part odyssey into the 90s. My name is Larry Parsons, I'm your host and I'm Canadian, and my guest this week, Jason DeBray, and I are going to talk about the best horror movies of the 1990s. And considering the list, I think it's interesting that uh, we almost entirely missed a subgenre of the 80s. I think uh, it spurred out initially from Fatal Attraction, but there was a whole series of movies in the 90s. Sleeping with the Enemy, The Good Son, Single White Female, Unlawful Entry, The Temp, uh, Fear, Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Dream Lover, Deadbolt, I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a bunch. All of these Stalker movies were very, very popular throughout the 90s. And between Jason and I, we mentioned none of them. Are those horror movies? Is there a reason they got missed? Well, write me and let me know at rankinreview at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the rest of the list. I hope you enjoy the rest of the reviews. And I hope you continue to listen to Rankin Review. Beware of swears. Beware of spoilers. And thank you for listening. You believe in possession, Father? Take a little blood from you, Father. The boy had been crucified. I've just never seen anything like this in 20 years. The killer drove an ingot into each of his eyes and cut off his head. going to be an easy thing to be a part of a, the Exorcist franchise like how do you follow up the Exorcist yeah. you don't make Heretic obviously that mistake was made but 
1990, they want to do a new Exorcist movie. The producers come together. Originally, it was The Exorcist 1990. Then it was Legion. And then they settled on Exorcist 3. But it is based off of a novel called yep. Legion, Legion yeah. by William Peter Blatty. And it mainly has to deal with this uh, George C. Scott character, the Kinderman character, is facing another strange series of deeply religious punishment-oriented murders. And uh, also on the precipice, one of his best friends is one of the victims. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of implied by the movie the dude was on his way out anyway, but nobody should die in such an awful way. It's awful. I it's mean, awful, yeah. yeah. So George C. Scott, it's very personal to him right away. So it, it's hard for him to retain his professional veneer. <laughs> and mm -hmm. he's had this discussion with his friend who was a priest where... He's just spent his life waiting in the shit for so long that even with all he's seen, he's having a real issue with his faith. Yeah. So, through this investigation and through his inter series of interviews with this mysterious psych patient, sometimes played by... Um, um, Jason Miller. Jason Miller, sometimes played by Brad Dorff mm -hmm. uh, as this... Uh, what is it? Trinity Killer? Something killer? Ugh, my brain is moving slowly. Uh, Gemini. Gemini, Gemini killer. Um, it's interesting because I get the feeling like even though they had a good basis of the Legion novel and William Peter Blatty, even though he's a novelist, I actually do think is a decent filmmaker uh, in this. There's, I get a feeling of a little bit too many cooks when we talk about the director's mm -hmm. cut of all of this. Like we have Brad Dorff and he's doing great work, but hey, Jason Miller's available. Let's get Jason Miller. So they filmed all this shit with Brad Dorff, and he's amazing, just tearing it up. But then they bring in Jason Miller, and he's pretty good, too, and he's got this direct sort of connection to mm -hmm. the original movie. So instead of deciding which one to use, they use both, right? And then in the novel, in the story of Legion, it kind of just peeks out with Kinderman killing this guy in the cell, mm -hmm. and we're left to assume he's going to be having to pay the price for this, but... His faith has been rekindled. <laughs> yeah. But arguably that's less of a climax than the forced exorcism sequence that mm -hmm. they put in the actual theatrical cut of the movie. Taking both of them, uh, watching them both for this side by side, I'm going to play defense for the theatrical cut of the movie. Mm -hmm. Even though maybe ending with the actual exorcism was a compromise because it's not in the book. But if you're going to call your movie Exorcism 3... There should maybe be an exorcism in it. I would think so, yeah. Right? Uh, and uh, all of that stuff ends up being less interesting to it in the way, even though there's some characters connecting to it, even though uh, Jason Miller's connecting us to it, what really makes this feel like an exorcist movie is the tone and execution mm -hmm. of the film. Uh, I don't mind the over-the-top exorcism at the end. In fact, it kind of needs a big place to go because it takes a long time getting there but in the end of the day i do think it gets there and i do think as a suspenseful thriller and as a at least sequel in in texture and mm -hmm. in feeling it is so much closer to what i want an exorcist movie to be than oh, yeah. heretic yeah and i've always loved george c scott as an actor oh terrific uh, he's got this grumpy energy but he's also impossible not to like so Enough of this movie works that it completely redeems the franchise for me from part two. Where do you land on The Exorcist 3? 
I, I, I love it. Um, and I wasn't sure that I would, uh, because the exorcist is my favorite horror movie of all time. Uh, I don't think it's as effective as the original exorcist. What is? And it's, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm not sure now if I watched the director's cut or the theatrical cut because I did see the exorcism and that's not that's in the, the theatrical one. Then yeah, I saw the theatrical one. Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, I, I I think it worked really well. I didn't have a problem with the Bre- uh, Brad Dorf, um, Jason Miller thing because I think Jason Miller was one of the most underrated parts of the original Exorcist. For sure, um, his his performance from beginning to end was great. Uh, a lot of people talked about Linda Blair and uh, Ellen Bernstein's performances, rightly so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was probably, if I had been alive that year, I would have been, uh, there was no social media at the time where I'd be, as right now, when I start trying to campaign to people <laughs> who will never actually see uh, <laughs> see who I'm campaigning for. But I would have gone for The Exorcist to win Best Picture, Best Director, Screenplay. And I, I would have wanted Jason Miller to win Best Supporting Actor. I'm not sure who won it that year. But um, so when when he, because that, that was maybe part of the reason I, I let Heretic um, go. I mean, I, I knew it was going to be terrible. And so I came in with the expectation it would be terrible. So maybe it wasn't quite as bad <laughs> as I thought. And I'm probably uh, a Richard Burden fan, despite myself. Uh and I was happy to see Linda Blair because everybody made up lies that she wasn't in some institution after that movie, after The Exorcist, and she was actually possessed by Satan. And Alas, no. And <laughs> no, no. She was made a movie a few years later, um, uh, which I've I mean, what, was not I've great. Seen repossessed. Yeah. Yeah. It was not, that was not great. This one belongs in a film that can be called The Exorcist 3. Uh, I think it wouldn't. Would have been great if they had gone with the title of the the novel. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was kind of a, a discussion, probably a long discussion that they had. Uh, unlike Clive Barker, I think William Peter Blatty could make a film. Um, did he make any others? Uh, the Ninth Configuration, I think is Which one of the seen. other ones. Um, I'm missing one here. I'll just IMDb it real quick. Sorry. I think some of the, the very, very minor flaws with with this film... Or the fact that he is the novelist as well. So we talked about Nightbreed having too much stuff um, in it. Uh, this not not quite as much, but he did want to throw a lot into this this film. And I, I've listened to with The Exorcist. I've listened to his audio commentary of the movie. Right. And he really likes to go on and the, about the theology and Catholicism and the history of exorcisms. And it's like. Man, you made this, you know, you wrote the scariest movies of all time here, but you do make it sound a little bit like uh, an academic lecture. Right. And I, I felt that in a few places here, yet he knew where the scares were. He knew how to emphasize those as a filmmaker. Um, and and so I think there's a, there's a lot of good here. Terrific cast. And, uh, yeah, I... I, I think of um, of your three selections for for this. This is my my favorite, favorite of yeah. of them. That's um, an easy I, call. And I would, I mean, I'd watch this again and again. I think I would get more out of it. So part of the thing, and I, I've never completely felt this way, but I have heard of people watching the original Exorcist multiple times and going, 
doesn't have the same impact. Right. This one, I think the more I watch it, the greater the impact will be because it is a little bit more of a cerebral experience. It has a couple of jump scares, but it's not about jump scares. No. It's about mood and atmosphere, and that's so much tougher to pull off. Mm-hmm. It also, in keeping with mood and atmosphere, actually has a lot of humor to it. Uh, the banter between uh, George C. Scott and uh, Ed Flanders, the actors, the priest, who yeah, his friends, yeah, they true. have a really kind of buddy back and forth mm-hmm. that is genuinely warm and amusing. Scott Wilson, who plays a doctor at the hospital, who people might recognize from The Walking Dead, he played Herschel yeah. in The Walking Dead. His really strange, affected performance, the way he's pinching his cigarettes between two yeah. figures and never not smoking it. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where uh, George C. Scott's about to come to his office and you can see him rehearsing what he's going to go over with the guy. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it comes off as really weird and kind of funny that he's like nervously yeah. rehearsing what he's going to say. We find out later on through context that he's been told to tell this story to him. He's been given specific instructions. Mm-hmm. But the first time you're watching it, it comes off as weird and kind of funny, but it doesn't hurt the movie at no, all. It's no. just this like, well, what, what are you guys doing here? But I'm with you. I'm with yep. you. And uh, it would be really easy to stray too far left or right and lose you. And uh, you don't. The first hour and I would say 15 minutes of this movie is a series of conversations. Yep. Uh, we get the details on these deaths and we have a few like moments of boo, but... It is not this visceral, you know, blood and teeth and tissue type of movie. It wants to unnerve you, and they're successful at it. And, and it can't be parodied. The original Exorcist can be and has been parodied yeah. a lot because of the like the vomit scene and, and that kind of thing. This doesn't have as much of that, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that it's they could they they would only There's have a, to try to top the exorcist which yeah they didn't they didn't try to do i think yeah. it was he only directed sorry for the record one other movie called the ninth configuration but interesting to note uh, in the cast we have stacy keach top line oh yeah, yeah but scott wilson mm-hmm. jason miller mm-hmm. ed flanders yeah three of the same actors he worked with yeah. again yeah so he likes his actors and is mm-hmm. loyal to them. That's interesting. But yeah, he's only got credited to the Ninth Confederation, Exorcist Three, and Legion, which is what they've called the director's cut. And what another insider story? Uh, because I, I think at one point I mentioned that maybe if William Freakin had been, but maybe not, teen, you know, late '80s, early '90s, William Freakin had directed this, it might have been even better. Um, but George C. Scott and William Freakin, uh, got, I think they got into some sort of a fight on oh. a previous film project where they actually, I, I think, I'm not sure which, which one of them punched each other. Got and, it, and this was Jason Miller was trying to get this, this hockey movie together. Right. Nick Nolte was involved with the movie. Um, and, and Scott said he would never work with Freakin. So it's kind of funny that a few years later, then Miller's in this movie, and George C. Scott is the anchor for you know the best sequel of The Exorcist. Um, but he probably would not have agreed if they had the original director involved. So I, I think a lot of a lot of these people were friends or or enemies, and it's yeah. just kind of this. I think it's interesting too that the central character that George C. Scott's playing, was it Kinderman? My, my, my brain um, he is really grumpy and 
blunt with people. Yeah. Uh, there's this scene where like the guy in the hospital is like bitching and squawking in his ear. Why you got me under lockdown? Why can nobody come in and out of the hospital without showing their ID to a police officer? There's other things going on. Blah 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 blah. And he takes it as long as he can. Oh, and then. But then he fucking loses <laughs> yeah. it. And like tears fill his eyes. Like mm-hmm. he is so frustrated. Yes. My best friend just died horribly. Somebody who was once one of my best friends has somehow manifested himself inside this psych place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have got a lot of conflicting thoughts going on in my brain right now. Yeah. And what I don't need <laughs> is for you to be beep, 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 beeping yeah. in my fucking yeah. ear. And I think that if it wasn't played carefully, we would just sort of like, man, this guy's a hot-headed son of a bitch. But he's hurting. Mm-hmm. He's hurting and he's got a puzzle he needs to solve. And he loses his shit and I'm with him. <laughs> and uh, the movie is consistent. I'm consistently with the movie, and the movie is consistently with me. And again, I think that I heard the Coen Brothers refer to directing as basically uh, engaging and measuring tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the number one job: is yeah. to keep the tone consistent. Yeah. Know what kind of tone you're going for and ride it. Yeah. And uh, playing that note in the right register for mm-hmm. the, the right amount of time. I think is what good filmmakers do. And, and George C. E. Scott was the right guy for absolutely. that. Absolutely. I, I can't think of anybody around that time that could have pulled it off. Yeah. Uh, and so bravo to everyone. It's it's one of these things where it's nothing flashy about it, mm-hmm. but that's what makes it so impressive. Yeah. It's getting real. <laughs> and this is one where some people might be shouting, that is not a horror movie. So we're getting into that phase uh, with my list. Um, I, I saw it uh, last year at the um, Flashback Film Festival that Cineplex does. And um, it was just as effective as the first time. I saw it, Shallow Grave, Danny Boyle's film. Uh, I believe it was pre-train spotting. and uh, And I think Ewan McGregor wasn't even... The lead, he was kind of second in that movie. It's a really great premise. Uh, like all kinds of like little things lead to bigger things. Another one of these movies that was very influenced, I think, by Hitchcock. Um, but the fact that it's uh, Scottish, it was just so so cool to see how it was how it was handled. Um, Super energetic. It uh, is from start to finish. I think the real feat of that movie is it introduces three characters who are largely unlikable, yeah, nobody. but puts them in a position that's so terrible that it's still hard not to cheer for them anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's moments where you just think, oh, it's all going to fall apart here. And it, I mean, I've seen a lot of movies, yeah. and the fact that I'm on the edge of my seat thinking, even the, you know, even though I've seen it before, I'm still like, oh... Oh, what's what's gonna happen here? Uh, it's just so well made, well written. Um, I kind of wish that he was that Danny Boyle was still doing movies kind of like that. Right. Um, it was a kind of a great time for British cinema in the early '90s, and 
Like, Whether you're you're gonna call it a horror movie or not, yeah. I don't know. But uh, I agree, it's a great movie. I love. I've always loved Danny Boyle. Even the least, you know, my least favorite Danny Boyle movie is still worth a look, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I didn't really think of it in this context of a horror movie. Yeah, I was wrestling uh, with that idea. So yeah, the same reason I didn't put like Cape Fear on that. I was just, just like uh, it would take something else off the list that was more quote horror to me mm-hmm. but I don't begrudge its presence I do think it's a great movie for me all the way in 12th position and we're going to start hearing some movies we've already talked about here but Army of Darkness yes like, look, fabulous good bad I'm the guy with the gun <laughs> this is <laughs> this is immortal cinema as far as I'm concerned mm-hmm. that's right up there with do you feel lucky punk <laughs> yes as far as yes. I'm concerned right? yeah. uh, I love 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 this universe i appreciate that they gave us three more seasons of ash versus evil mm-hmm. dead um but yeah i think that a lot of people you know army of darkness is their fave for me evil dead 2 is the ideal it's, crystallization it's of the best the evil one dead yeah. universe but i love me some army of darkness this was a bigger <laughs> movie in many ways yeah. than the other two but and it's just one of these movies where like the the, the dorks who you know spent several years carving together that rough little picture called Evil Dead mm-hmm. got to play with all the toys in the toy yes, box and yes. make this ludicrous fantasy horror movie and if you don't like it you can just go right to hell <laughs> Army of Darkness <laughs> I also wanted to mention we already mentioned it earlier uh, similar in vain but not making the list yes The Frighteners the Peter mm-hmm. Jackson movie similar in its over the top sort of stupidity and fun I really like that movie but I couldn't find a spot for it on the list but there yeah. it is yeah fair enough um, okay, another movie, but to, to me, there were two movies in 1999 which dealt with ghosts. One was The Sixth Sense, which got nominated for several Academy Awards and uh, kind of made a career of kind of the. Um, makes it sound like I don't like Stephen King, but the Stephen King of filmmakers. They start off with a reasonable premise for a movie and then you just go kind of sideways in the. In, towards the end there with M. Night Shyamalan. But the one that scared me a lot more or had me, you know, had me thinking and I just couldn't understand why it didn't get a bigger audience, The Stir of Echoes. And I think it's one of Kevin Bacon's best performances. I like that he, he's in Flatliners. He obviously was in the original in the original Friday the 13th. Um, so I like that he'll do kind of highbrow stuff, but then he will also uh, yeah. do a, a genre movie like this. I, I, I just think it's more effective. Um, uh, I also think he's really good in the movie. Uh, a lot of the times when you're watching Kevin Bacon, you kind of feel like I'm watching Kevin Bacon. Yeah. It's not even his fault. He's just been in movies for as long as I've been alive. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of interesting to see him play a low-status character who's knocked back on his yeah. heels for most of the movie. He doesn't know what the fuck to do no. about this. No. I think that's an awesome choice because and for the first time on this list, we have the same movie in the same ranking on the list. In the same... I've also ranked Stir of Echoes in 11. Number 11, place. all right. High five. That's an interesting coincidence. I love Richard Matheson. He wrote the source yes. novel. Yes, yes. And David Kep, although he recently got squeezed through the ringer for this movie, he did Mordecai. I haven't seen Mordecai, so I shouldn't mm-hmm. speak on it, but... Um, I was always cheering for David Kep as the director. I mean, mm-hmm. he did this movie called The Trigger Effect yeah. about a power outage in Los Angeles. Then he did the Stir of Echoes movie. He did the Ricky Gervais comedy I recently talked about on the podcast called Ghost Town. Yes. I, I mean, it's a good movie. He's, yeah. he's an interesting director. and I've always sort of been on his side. And I think this is the reason why. Because mm-hmm. I was like you. I, I got why everybody loved The Sixth Sense. It was pretty obvious. 
but I didn't get why nobody loved or, or was giving the same love to Stir of Echoes. I think it was the kid. The kid and, and the twist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Haley Joel Osment, and people really underestimate how good child actors can be, and he yeah. was so good in the movie that it, it's somehow it has sentimental quality to it that Stir of Echoes does not have a sentimental quality. No, it's a fairly straight ghost movie, but it's a really good movie. Oh, it's solid. It's yeah. solid. I actually wanted Kevin Bacon to be up for Best Actor for this movie. Huh. Um yeah. And that was another 1999 film. It yeah. was a very good year. That year was so crowded that, like, you, you, if you made a really good movie, you were fucked. Because most yeah. of the movies were excellent. Yeah. <laughs> really good was not going to cut it. It was not. In some years, yeah. this might have had more of a chance. Or if it... Well, I mean, we talked about The Matrix effect and how a bunch... There were a bunch of other movies before The Matrix or the same year as The Matrix mm-hmm. um, that didn't get as much attention. Gotcha. And in this case, two movies that... I won't say are completely similar, um, similar but they've got they both have ghosts. They both have ghosts, and yeah. one one got forgotten about, and, and unfortunately, it's Stir of Echoes, but it's not being forgotten about. And not by us, dude. This, yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, so it's you, sorry. All right, number ten, and this is one of uh, your uh, didn't put on the list, but you were kind of mentioning anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, California. Uh, okay. Yeah, I I just think it's. Again, a real life uh, horror show is, you know, and it's like these stupid decisions that people will still, I think, would reasonably make in the early 90s, might not make now. Oh, let's just uh, let's just travel and share expenses with this random couple that we've never really gone to know or met um, and not realizing that they are traveling with serial killers. And I, I really think it's. One of Brad Pitt's best performances. I like him when he's in darker yeah. films. I mean, and he's a guy who's not afraid. He's a good-looking movie star, no doubt about it. But he's not afraid to make himself ugly. And this is way, way more than than I think any film that he's done. Yeah. Where he made himself ugly. There's that 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 thing he does with his nose, like he's <laughs> through the whole thing. Yeah. It's it's so off-putting early on. You know that this is. Well, okay, that's the thing about that movie. I remember when I saw that movie, it was another Place Real watch, and I remember I'm going to keep an eye on Dominic Senna. Yeah, unfortunately, no. it's been diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. He started strong, but hasn't really gone anywhere. That's yeah. fascinating. But for me, it really is that Brad Pitt performance. I think I used to listen. Well, I still will listen to uh, Film Spotting, which is a movie review podcast out of Chicago. But uh, I was really off, but one of the hosts went off on Brad Pitt in this movie, basically thinking that he was terrible. It was like, I don't know what Brad Pitt was thinking. Like, I don't know. This was just a completely ridiculous thing. To me, this crazy, I have seen. I have seen this guy. This confident, mm-hmm. malevolent evil. Mm-hmm. This guy who is so violent, so full of himself, and so full of shit. But he's calling the shots. You're mm-hmm. going to agree with him, or yep. you're going to get fucked up I know that character I've been like I know that kind of bully and I think that Brad Pitt did a really and good job of it you can misjudge him as <laughs> David Duchovny's parents. character does yeah. Duchovny by the way pre-X-Files is yeah. in this um, before and Juliette Lewis who I I, I really like Juliette Lewis um, I, I get excited when she's in a movie even if it's a movie that doesn't turn out that that great but it's and, another one of her naive characters it, it is it yeah. is uh but yeah, there was something else I was gonna say about about this. Well, I yeah, I guess what it is, 
it reminded me of a lot, a lot. I'm, I'm not sure it's as good as this film, but it reminded me of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which right. is um, one of the best horror movies of the 1980s as well. And um, it was kind of a thing where it, it and and Natural Born Killers, with both with Juliette Lewis, came out within you know two years of each other. I think this was filmed a long time ago, mm. years before, because I. I I read Nick Nolte's autobiography recently, and he talked about Juliette Lewis, and they were making Cape Fear, and she was just reeling from Brad Pitt breaking up with her. Oh, I see. And I don't know if they were, you know, kind of exes at the time that they filmed that the movie, or if it was, it took that I don't long. Really followed the TMZ. Yeah, I know. It was, it was, I, it, but it was a very independent film, so it might have taken them a few years to get it out into right. theaters. And it's oh. dark, and I. I highly recommend that people check it out if California you with like a this. K. With a K, yeah. 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 Uh, so this one you've already talked about. It was much lower on your list, but it's always ranked pretty high in my 90s horrors, and that's Candyman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good. I think that this idea of modern urban legends, uh, it's sort of like the... It's Clive Barker's version of Bloody Mary mm-hmm. is essentially what yeah. it is. But I really like that. I think it's a striking idea. And it's really only effective in the first Candyman movie. Mm-hmm. And I know this British director was a very arty-farty guy. He would like try to put Virginia Madsen in a trance for mm-hmm. any of the scenes in which she was encountering Candyman. Mm-hmm. And there's something weird and touchy-feely about it, but he was taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I watched the little mini-documentary, and it's basically just a promotional reel for the movie. But mm-hmm. Virginia Madsen says, no matter who you are, there's something in this movie that will scare you. Yes. And I actually think she's right about that. The whole movie, wall to wall, may not work for you, but I guarantee you there'll be a couple of scenes that you will find hard to shake. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there's also, and maybe this is the racist portion of my review, mm. uh, this sort of fear for this uh, short, skinny, white lady exploring this ghetto neighborhood in mm. Chicago, right? This... The neighborhood was so bad, like, that they were encouraged not to shoot there. Mm-hmm. They had really bad crime and really bad gang violence. Yeah. So there was something really ballsy about her character just being willing to go to these places by herself and yeah. investigate. Like, she was putting her life in danger before she knew there was a supernatural boogeyman. Yes. And that definitely plays into the tension of the movie as well. Whether that's a good or bad thing, you can debate, but well, it's there. But I, I like that this is a character who is not a victim. Yeah, no, she's strong. No, she's, not, she's a strong character. She's strong from the beginning. Um, and, like, she finds herself in this relationship with this this older man from the, uh, who turns out to be cheating on her, and he's just a bad giant person. jerk. But, I mean, as, as far as, like, what, what he gets, uh, he kind of gets what's coming to him. And I just like a, a horror movie with a strong female lead who's not, I mean, she's not running around in her underwear being chased by some monster or something like that. Right. Um, it's, I, yeah, I, I wasn't sure how you felt about this one. Right. Um, and it's one that I, I wasn't sure how, how big a fan base it has, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I, I put it on my list. No, no it here. ranked high to me. I like it. Yeah, I like it. Uh, it. It feels '90s, unmistakably, but I think it's mm-hmm. a good horror movie, and that's what we're here to talk about. Well, as far as a, a monstrous type of character, well, there's a reason that Candyman is the way that Candyman is, yeah. and so he he doesn't feel kind of like the Freddies and the Jasons, and he still is a bad guy, but he's not completely unsympathetic either. No, no, it's it, yeah, it's a very very clever film, and 
Yeah, there was. I think there was one sequel, or was there more than there's one? Th- there's three. Okay, there's some kind of straight to video ones yeah. that I haven't seen. I I saw the second one in New Orleans, but there's uh, second and third. Yeah, Day yeah. of the Dead and uh, Farewell to the Flesh. Farewell to the Flesh was the second. That's yeah. the one. But I haven't seen the third one, so you're fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> See the okay. first one, and then you can sort of leave it at that. Honestly, okay. with Candyman, but uh, that's where number ten. Yeah. Okay, so number nine. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is my Guillermo del Toro uh, uh, contribution here, Kronos, which uh, kind of made him, I think, as far as a, a filmmaker who then went to Hollywood. And uh, it, it's, it, it's, his films kind of balance a sentimentality with, with monsters, and he often will have kind of children in there too. Um, it's such a well-made film. Uh, it took me years to see it. I, I heard about it. It seemed like 94 was kind of a year where independent cinema was starting to be like, okay, studios, watch out. Um, and, and I heard about this, uh, this really unusual uh, horror movie that was coming, that was coming out of, of Mexico. Mexico, and it's, it's, it exceeded my expectations. Um, so much so that I, I think uh, I'm not as big a fan of The Shape of Water mm-hmm. as, as other people. I, I was a little bit disappointed that it won Best Picture because I saw I saw Kronos and I think Kronos is a better film than Shape of Water. And But it was kind of... I like Shape of Water. It was not a better film than Three Billboards. Just no, Three Billboards should have won. It really yeah, should yeah, have. Hands down. Good. Uh, yeah. It was a political thing that kind of happened with Three Billboards, which was unfortunate, but... Anyway, Kronos is a is a fabulous film. I recommend it. Um, it is subtitled, like yeah. a couple of my movies. I was trying to throw in. I'm not sure it's as balanced as I was like as I, I would like, but I mean, I have. Um, oh, uh, it's a solid choice. I put Mimic on there for me. Kronos, I like Kronos. Mm-hmm. It was what I expected it to be. Whereas for me, Mimic kind of exceeded my expectations a little bit. Mm-hmm. I guess I could have put both of them on the list. There wasn't a rule saying no. I couldn't have more than one. But yeah, uh, I, I hope not. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, and I, I was watching it around the same time that I watched Mimic, and this Mimic to me was it, it felt. A little bit too Hollywood, right. and I'll get into that a little bit more. Kronos felt like it was a little bit more pure, uh, and a bit more of him, like he's he's trying to create a vision for for yeah. some aspect of the world. Great relationships, solid villain, human villain in there um, right. as well, and like really kind of creepy, like the yeah, it's just the. the the gory aspect is, is very, very well done. So. And it sort of starts, you're right, in this sweet place, and it mm-hmm. gets progressively darker. They yeah. dim the lights over the movie instead of bringing them up. Yeah. Uh, okay, so in ninth position for me is another one that we're going to be talking about. It is Adrian Lane's Jacob's Ladder. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I really do think the movie is strong. I've always thought it was strong. A lot of the stuff that we can talk about in the review that I think I actually take away from it is stuff that's not really the movie's fault. Something's wrong, Jake. They're coming after me. I don't know who they are or what they are, but they're going to get me, and I'm scared, Jake. I've seen them, too. Maybe the demons are real. He's running 106 feet with... This is barbaric. I can get rid of the demons. Who are you? I can block the ladder. Who are you taking me? Where am I? Where do you want to go? Home. This is your home. You're dead. I'm not dead. What are you then? I'm alive. So I've seen Jacob's Ladder a lot. Mm -hmm. I've reviewed it on the podcast before. Um, I've 
been on record that I'm a, a huge fan of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how every time I watch the movie, though, it seems to be a different thing that I yeah. really connect to about it. I think that's part of the movie's strengths. Yeah. Um, but basically, Jacob Singer is uh, a Vietnam vet, and we sort of getting a collage of images of these three areas of his life. There's this Vietnam area where we see him with his Vietnam buddies, but they've obviously been poisoned or, or dosed with some kind of yeah. drug that has rendered them insane. There's a battle sequence. We eventually find out it's just them fighting each other, but it's so chaotic. You can't really understand what's happening yeah. as you see it. Ving Raim starts pitching a fit and gargling blood out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. It's really crazy. So we get that, and then we get these images of this life he had that feels like before with a wife and a, this darling little child played by Macaulay Culkin. And then we jump to another sort of version of Jacob Singer, and it seems like maybe after the war, where he's living with Elizabeth Pena, mm-hmm. his family is part of his past now, and yeah. he's sort of this walking wounded PS, or PTSD sort of figure. Mm-hmm. And the movie just keeps on throwing you all these disparate places and asking you to make sense of it. Uh, I've said before that if you're going to pull off a movie that if it was all a dream, you better fucking bring it for me because that shit typically pisses me off. Mm-hmm. This is the exception to the rule. I think that, that it absolutely works. But what struck me upon this viewing of it is how I found the movie difficult, almost impenetrable a lot when I watched it in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And watching it now, it almost feels like there is a very clear path of interpreta- uh, of interpretation to this movie. And it became very much about both the visual journey of Jacob Singer from a very dark place to a very light place, and to some really clever things they do uh, with how they handle both the good and bad aspects. The the devils and angels are the metaphor that they Mm -hmm. use in the film, but in a way both the devils and the angels are serving the same purpose. They're both helping Jacob get to this place, this place of epiphany, this place of... uh, and that Danny Aiello's character, the most angelic yes. character of them all, mm-hmm. is first a chiropractor, which is a, a profession that has a lot of shade thrown on it, by mm-hmm. the way. And secondly, even when he's helping Jacob, he's hurting him. Mm-hmm. Snap. Mm-hmm. Snap. Yes. Snap. Life is pain. Life is suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the good people hurt him. Even the people he loves. Elizabeth Panna becomes yes. this... Like, her name is actually Jezebel, if you want to get all this biblical on this. Yeah. She becomes almost problematically bad, but she he loves her, and she loves him so much that it's hard to not at least be on her side a little bit, but then you see images of her, you know, <laughs> fucking a demon on a dance floor, and her burning these pictures of his former life in a sort of cold, angry kind of way. We're not yeah, sure how Yeah, we're not sure is that actually happening or is that in the end of the day the movie tells you exactly what's going on like a couple of times it implicitly tells you exactly Mm -hmm. what's going on but you're so inundated with the images that maybe you you just either let it blow by or you don't want this to be the truth you want the truth to be Jacob Singer is going to repair his broken you know soul because he bears feels responsible for the death of his son he's going to be able to make peace with what happened to him in vietnam and he's going to be able to repair this relationship with elizabeth Pena. but the goal is none of those things no <laughs> right oh. 
So it's an endlessly fascinating movie, and uh, on this probably the tenth or twelfth time I've seen it, it remains so. So that's good. Yeah, I haven't watched it as many times as you have. Yeah. Um, but I admire it so much, and I, I'm not sure that this movie would be made now. I because it is not. It's challenging. It's a challenging film. I I'm, I'm still not sure, other than. Like there's the odd movie here or there that's released that it's like, oh wow, like somebody actually took a, a risk for once. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the early 90s, there, I, I thought there were a lot of filmmakers taking risks. Maybe not as much in the horror genre, um, but this was a challenging film. Uh, I don't know how well it did box office wise. Uh, it was, I, I think it was released in the same sort of time frame as say the silence of the lambs in early 1991 um but it is to me i i just keep going back to it the first time i saw it was in university um with our our, our lord and savior uh lee, lee beckman <laughs> showed it to i he was directing me in a play and he showed it to our cast because part some some themes of it were related to uh yeah, we what we were uh working on at the time and and I was like, I have no idea. This thing has just opened my eyes. It is so fascinating. I have no idea where I am with this. Like, what we left from here to him wandering around New York. And um, I, I think this is one of those ones where the first time is just amazing. But it's good to hear that, you know, if I go back and watch this movie another 10 times, I'm going to get something different each time and how many movies can you say that not many. about like even some of the ones I'm gonna I highly praise um, on this list the more times I, I watch some of these more standard films I'm I start to see some flaws mm-hmm. um, in them this one I, I think may maybe one of the flaws but this I think each time you see it you're, you maybe right you project something different uh, you'd mentioned to me that the inclusion of Macaulay Culkin is distracting now. Just because Macaulay Culkin is Kevin from Home Alone. Yeah. Same thing with Jason Alexander being George Costanza. Yeah. At the time this movie came out, I didn't associate them with that. No. So it, no. it doesn't wreck the movie in any way. It's no. just like, oh, there's Macaulay Culkin. Oh, there's George Costanza. And for a second, you're just taken out of it. Just just for by a no second. Fault, but, but it's not... By it's no not, fault of the movie. No, it's, it's not... just a thing. And this time, I because uh, it's the same screenwriter as Ghost. Yeah. And, and and so there are a few points where there are scenes and some ideas that I thought were being wrestled with in, in Ghost, but just handled in a totally different way. Because this, I believe this was still a studio film, yet it does not operate like a studio film. No. It operates more like an indie. And... Um, and I like to get lost in a in a film and not know where it's going and, and what's happening. And I I have the patience to go along with that. I'm not sure modern audiences have the patience to go on this journey. Right. But they really should. Right. And I wish there were more movies like Jacob's Ladder well, um, I, I think out there. It's definitely still in the public consciousness for a movie as old as it is now comparatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not too many people will shake their heads when you say, have you seen Jacob's Ladder? Most people have heard of it and or seen it. But I go back to where I started. At the time, I remember finding it, and again, I was quite young when I first saw it, yeah. a really tough film to get my head around. And there's a scene where Danny Aiello, they actually sample it in a DJ Shadow Tom York song, says, <laughs> yes. uh, 
these devils that you see could really just be angels freeing you from the earth. You're yes. holding on to shit and they're trying mm -hmm. to shake you out of it. They're trying to say, no, 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 don't worry about any of that shit anymore. Mm -hmm. That shit you're finished with. And this, this afterlife that he's wrestling with, he's trying to give him all of these answers. And the interesting thing to ask is, are these the actual answers? He... One of the first times we see him, he's on a subway, mm -hmm. and there's this weird woman he tries talking to, and she doesn't seem to acknowledge him. And when he wakes up on the subway, the first thing we see is all these say no to drug messages yes. on the thing. And then we go into this history of he was drugged in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Well, he wants to know what happened. He wants to make sense of his death. So this is the story that his brain is telling him, right? It's even outwardly projected on the subway yes. car. yes. When he's in there. So everything you see can sort of a be purpose. A, a hint or a metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end of the day, is it true? The Elizabeth Penna character never exists because presumably he never gets home from Vietnam, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. maybe Spoiler, this is just a woman that he'd seen at the post office and sort of fantasized and stuck about. In his, yeah. So he imagines what his life could be if he'd made it home from Vietnam and how he's got this beautiful girlfriend who loves him. And yet uh, there's a sense that that path is may not, not, there's something wrong there yeah. too. And then, okay, well let's go back. Let's be the married man. Let's have the family back. Let's, you know, embrace where I was when everything mm -hmm. was good. But he knows that his son has died. I mean, I don't think that's a creation of the dream. I think that's something that actually mm -hmm. happened that he had to live with. Mm -hmm. And he has to make his peace with it. He feels responsible whether he is or not. It's just bad circumstance. You turn your head for the wrong three seconds and that's all it takes. Mm -hmm. um, but he is given absolution for the death of his son. He's given an explanation, whether it's true or not, for the events that lead up to his death. And when he dies on the table, yes, spoiler, he dies on the ta operating table mm -hmm. in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He's got this peaceful look on his face because, as far as he's concerned, all of these questions have been answered. He's no longer suffering with the loss of his family. He doesn't have to suffer post-traumatic stress because mm -hmm. it won't be delivered to him. And he can, in some sort of spiritual way, return to his son. So, Jacob wins by dying. And it's... <laughs> well, it's a little bit of a reflection of, like, what, what are your last moments before you die? What you know, your life flashing before your eyes or whatever. And, and, and this is what happens to him. But I think there's a, there's just a ton of stuff to this. Now we aren't really talking about it as a horror movie, but there is it's some horrifying. really, really scary <laughs> moments. Um, he, there's this thing where he can't get out of a subway station, yeah, which is just uh, relatable. Um, if you've ever lived in a major city and you're, you know, there's, I mean, I, I'm one of the, people that I actually like the New York subway system, but I'm not sure I would want to be uh, trapped, trapped in there. And just that's so well-directed. Um, Tim Robbins, I just need to say, he anchors this movie so well. And I, I just knew, even going back to Bull Durham, that he, he he was a great actor. I The last few years, I don't think he's been given... Much to do. Much to do. But it was all kind of a lead up to, to Mystic River. Finally, like, we'll acknowledge the guy. And his politics got in the way in the 90s sometimes. Him and Susan Sarandon, which was I thought was very unfair. The he chose half, smart roles. The first half of the 90s, he was unstoppable. Well, the, the year after this was The Player, which yeah. is a, a classic film. One, one of his best performances. But I, Shawshank, you can name... Dead Man Walking? I, you can name a 
just a million things that this guy did that was great, but he was still, you know, relatively young in Jacob's Ladder, and he does a great job of being, you know, our our eyes and ears for this film, and we're following him around. And then there's these, um, there's those those characters, and it's just this horrifying thing where um, where like skin is covering um, over their mouths, over their mouths, and just that that image stuck with me from the first the first time, and I didn't. I, I liked it the second time. I don't I don't think that's originally uh, the imagery was going to be much more traditionally heaven and hell bound and mm-hmm. he would see halos and wings from people who helped him. Yeah, and he would see that wouldn't horns, have worked as well. Mm-hmm. And he would see tails and hooves from people yeah. who didn't. And uh, I think Adrian Lynn decided to make it much more I don't know how you would describe it. It's weirdly urban. Got, it looks almost like they've got uh, pantyhose over their oh, face. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. And, uh, but the way they're spinning their heads, uh, oh, it looks like they're, they're blurring. And they actually shot that practically. They just slowed down the, the rate of film. So when oh, they played okay. it back, it just looked really crazy. Um, yeah, that's really shocking, <laughs> crazy imagery. And again, no CGI help there. And, and, and we need to credit Adrian Lin for directing this film. Yeah. I, I think he's kind of an underrated director. Uh, I think if you went too hard on the familiar angels and devils imagery, Oh, it would have been like, would, yeah, we're spoon-feeding this. They hinted at it. Mm-hmm. But again, some of the stuff is really hard. That famous, famous scene where he's put in the gurney and is pushed down the corridor and it gets increasingly oh. more and more awful. Oh, oh that's just a horrifying that? sequence. Do you remember what the doctor says to him? He says, calm down, you're dead. He mm-hmm. says, I'm not dead. Yeah. And the doctor just smiles at him with the indifference of a doctor yeah. and says, well, what are you then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's given the answer implicitly. He's, several he's not times, willing to accept it, though. But he's not ready yet. He's Even not ready, seeing no. all of this, he's not willing to accept it. Even seeing his girlfriend at the bedside as one of the operators on him is not enough for him to be convinced of it. But we're told several times. It's funny to me because I remember thinking that the ending blew me away the first time I saw it, and watching it now, Should've I'm known. just like. How did I know this was going but on? But we throw in Vietnam and, and post-traumatic stress from Vietnam veterans. And uh, still to this day, I'm sure there's many living on the streets of New York. But yeah. in the 80s and 90s, uh, they're all over the place. And Vietnam had not been properly acknowledged um, because it was a losing war yeah. by Americans. And so you can understand some paranoia. Yeah. Um, if, in fact... The truth was that he did leave Vietnam and he went and he tried to live his life. And it's reasonable that he wouldn't be able to, to function as a as a family man with kids and the and like the the trauma of losing a son. That he would go to this other woman um, who may or may not be good for him. Like a lot of that stuff Makes felt sense. real. And starting to see these things and blaming it on this experiment, which they. Rumors were that they experimented a lot on uh, soldiers in Vietnam. It is interesting because that did happen. Yeah. But again, I go back to the movie. Like, it could be him trying to explain to himself what happened in that chaos. He doesn't really understand it either. Mm -hmm. But especially because the Matt Craven character always shows up at the right moment to save him, right about when he's about to be attacked. There's a scene where Pruitt Taylor Vince, as another one of the veterans, gets exploded in his car. Yes. And just the way that explosion happens, there's just something artificial about mm-hmm. it. It's almost like it's almost like Jacob's creating the vision as it happens. Yeah. And uh, 
So I think an argument could be made, well, was he or wasn't he drugged? Yeah, that did happen in, in, in Vietnam. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. in the story, he tells himself the whole place was crazy and they killed each other. But who knows? <laughs> and, but that's why the very first viewing, you can go along with that stuff. Even then, even if they are screaming the, you know... The government officials pick him up and they mm-hmm. deliver him to hell, right? Yeah. So, like, if you take the story as straight as, like, it was an explanation to him, yeah, there were drugs and, yeah, the government was trying to cover it up. But it could also just be him fighting, you know? Mm-hmm. This didn't happen or there's a reason it happened or I yeah. need to know the reason. Why am I here? And to me, that very much parallels... The Patrick Swayze character in Ghost, who is not not willing to let go and yeah. completely die, yet the circumstances that are a little bit more relatable, I suppose, and just the both the stylistic choices were a lot more avant garde. And Jacob's Ladder both deal with the after the world of the afterlife very directly. Yeah, Ghost has very much got a, a clear goal. Mm-hmm. And he's so overpowered that he really couldn't not win that conflict, right? Yeah. I like Jacob's Ladder in that it's an exploration of the afterlife, but we don't know it until the second time we watch the movie. Mm -hmm. But I see a lot of ghost movies. I see a lot of movies with ghosts in them, but Mm -hmm. not a lot that actually explore an afterlife. Yeah. I want like a serious quote take on like what Beetlejuice did mm-hmm. where we have a couple characters who die together and then we get to experience the afterlife with them yeah. uh, it's a big subject and it's really hard to do well and I think this is one of if not the best example of it yeah maybe what dreams may come I mean it's another of, whack at it yeah, uh, but, but much not, more the novel than the movie yeah not not as effective as this I don't think yeah. Definitely, definitely check out Jacob's Ladder. I think yeah, it's, it's going to be a movie that people fabulous will continue film. to talk about yeah. for a long time. I hope so. People are gonna go along with me on this one, and I I was struggling. I, I had this every anywhere from my top five to maybe my top twenty, but I, I just think it's uh, it's such a good film. But mostly because of the performances, perhaps it's uh, Misery, directed by Rob Reiner. Um, it is still horrifying to me that. Uh, I'm not sure it would be possible in the year 2018 for somebody to kidnap a famous writer mm-hmm. in the way that uh, that she that she does, um, and I'd certainly it's it's more watered down. The, the the book is brutal. This is a little bit less brutal, but it's it's so well acted, and uh, I love it. It's is owed to Kevy. I would say it's less violent, but it's psychologically psychologically ter- terrible. And <laughs> yeah. well, and and the shot that that Reiner uses, where we see James Conn's perspective, and every time Kathy Bates comes into the room, which version are we going to yeah. get? Who's she going to be so today? It's almost like we're put in the bed with him, and so it's it's, it's very 
Yeah, it's mostly in that house. There's some other things, exteriors throughout. Um, uh, but I, I think it's just a, still a horrifying film. I think it holds up. It came out in 1990, and, and it's, it's several years old, but I, 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 I like it, and I, it was one where I thought, screw it, I'm putting yeah. it in my top ten. So Here comes another weird one. <laughs> I, get, how many I like, times I like I weird. Say, I want to go back on this list and say how many times I, I start my, my, well, just, my big defense. Yeah. In eighth place, from one of my favorite genre directors, Mr. John Carpenter, I have In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I get that it's an unstable and crazy movie, mm-hmm. but the unstable craziness helps the narrative of the movie. We have this uh, central character who's sort of an amalgam of H.P. Lovecraft and Stephen King, who writes novels that give him such a fervent fan base that it becomes like they worship him. They mm-hmm. become this cult of Sutter Kane. And Sam Neill uh, is asked to locate the author who's gone missing on the eve of his newest book coming out. And uh, the movie is insane mm-hmm. in a good way, yeah. <laughs> in a really good way, in a way that only John Carpenter seems to be effectively able to deliver. I mean, there are times when Robert Rodriguez knocks on that door, but he's mm-hmm. still not John Carpenter, yeah. you know. Uh, I love I love how everything's on the table in this movie. And uh, sometimes it, it almost gets like to this manic funniness, but at the end it's still kind of a horror movie. It's the craziness that they tap into, this sort of vein of insanity as put through the filter of the 1990s that, that's really interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you're going to take two horror stalwart where it's, I don't think you could have done better than Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft. Because oh, yeah. I think even if you haven't read Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft, you have a vague understanding mm-hmm. of what they represent. And this movie pays homage to both. So And, and Stephen King was on such solid ground in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Every book that he would that he would release would become a number one yeah. bestseller. So, um, yeah, I certainly saw that. I've, I've watched this movie a couple times. And I think I just... I don't know if I'm overthinking it. I just have problems with it. Right. Where I, I'm like, no, I, I, I just don't buy it. The setup is so good, but I just have, have, have trouble with it toward, towards the end. Where it's I, a very I, but crazy it's an movie. ambitious idea, and I think that's the thing that you reward is yeah. at least they're trying to do something different. Um, so it wasn't on my list, and I really, I kind of wanted a John Carpenter movie on <laughs> yeah. this list. The nineties were, were interesting, and the closest I. I came, but was not really. Was vampires? Which uh, is not a very good. No. I mean, it was a good role for James Woods, sort of, mm-hmm. but because he can do that over the top thing. Um, but yeah, I, I just couldn't put it on there. I couldn't put any of them on there, unfortunately. I've always had a soft spot for yeah. for uh, in the mouth of madness. I and yeah, and then, and fair enough. I mean, I think that's. I mean, at least it's trying to do something, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and it, I think it's very much of the 90s, so it's an appropriate choice yeah. for this list. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Not in trouble yet. No. <laughs> no. You keep thinking that I'm going to jump on. This is the part where, where Jay's going to just lose his just shit. Lose, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I made you uneasy. But, like Kathy Bates in Misery. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we're on to number seven. Mm-hmm. Number seven. All right. Um, and this one was, I was debating, it, it spent a lot of time, time in kind of my top five range there, but uh, Scream 2, directed by Wes Craven. Um, I was very, very nervous um, when they were releasing one year after Scream, the sequel. I thought, why are they messing with a good thing? Like, why? And I don't know if they filmed the two together 
they knew, but there's, there seemed to be a certain awareness. I guess the reason it's not a little bit higher is because I, I think it was a little bit more aware of what it was doing than say Scream. Um, so some things are, are purely over the top, purely comedic, and there's a lot of references, which is, which is fun. I mean, there's Courtney Cox is talking about uh, this fake nude. Uh, um, it was my head, but Jennifer Aniston's body. And there yeah. was this reference to David Schwimmer All playing a character that, in the this movie version All the of... stuff that's going to age terribly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So I get those jokes because I'm of the 90s. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I really enjoy it. And there's still some really ambitious sequences. And it... I have to admit, I didn't know who the killers were until they're mm-hmm. revealed in the climax, and which is nice. And so, and then watching it multiple times is still fun because I I'm watching the characters who are the killers and seeing what they're doing. And one thing I like to figure out is is the timeline business. Okay, is it realistic that these people would have been in this place? Like, who did this killing versus who did this killing? So you can map it out. Can map it out. There's some points where, it's, uh, like, God bless Jamie Kennedy, because this was the high point of his uh, acting it's career. We the, talked about him before. The movie he was good in. Yeah. I'm sorry to be so shitty, but if someone could give me mm. another example of Jamie Kennedy not sucking, that would be great. But he's <laughs> he has this one line, which was a hint of what was to come in his career yeah. uh, moments before his character gets killed there. Uh, I, and I, I don't know if you remember... In Remember Rival, this? The geek will get the girl, or no, no. It, like it, it's when he's telling the killer off. Oh, you know, and it's one of the more over the top line reads of "fuck you," right. which got a huge laugh uh, in in the screening I I saw. But now I watch it and like uh, that wasn't actually built up in right. any way. You know, it was not earned. It was not earned, uh, like some other moments versus uh, some of the other work that the actors did, which flirted with over the top but wasn't quite there. And I just think it's such a clever series. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of three, to be yeah. honest. I, I like four. I didn't think I would like four. So for me, two the, isn't as good. The deeper into this series, the more sure-footed that they are in what a screen movie is. And uh-huh. in that way, the less good they kind of become. Yeah. But uh, I won't... We'll be talking about the screen movies again. Okay. So, Sounds good. Uh, in seventh place, we've already mentioned it as well, and we are going to be reviewing it. I put The Exorcist Part 3. For the record, I am standing by the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen both versions of it now, and I think that it's different. I, usually I will err on the director's side. I'll say, I want to see what the director wanted us yeah. to see. But if the, this was the early 90s, late 80s, where they weren't just cutting the violence out of the movies, but they were actually destroying the footage. So we couldn't get a director's cut of Night of the Living Dead or Friday the 13th mm-hmm. 7 if we wanted to now. Because yeah. they literally destroyed the footage. Yeah. So uh, if the footage you have to inject back in the movie is that shaky, then it's just, not worth it. just live with the cut that mm-hmm. you have, generally speaking. It'll just take me out of the movie. And it doesn't add enough to justify itself. But... As a sequel to The Exorcist, which is what you were saying, in tone, in execution, mm-hmm. in character, in the balance of how they approach unnerving the audience, it is so much closer to The Exorcist yeah, than is. The Exorcist 2. It is, yeah. As a sequel to The Exorcist, it's solid. You could ask, did we need to have a sequel to The Exorcist? And the answer would be no. No, we did not. But if you are going to do a sequel to The Exorcist, 
why not hire William Peter Blatty mm-hmm. to adapt his novel, which was a fucking sequel to The Exorcist. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's enough good here so that it justifies its existence. Uh, yeah, seven might seem artificially high, um, and it's a much more composed conversational horror movie. But it's a straight horror movie. And that was such a rare commodity in the 90s. It fought its way to seventh place. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not going to disagree. It was just, you know how it is with this. I mean, what, you know. Where are you going to put them? Yeah, I mean, I obviously really, really like, uh, uh, really like this film. And the fact that I'm willing to acknowledge it. I think the only thing that would have been better is William Freakin coming back and uh, directing it. But I'm not quite sure where his mind was in the late 80s. He directed a movie right around this exact time called The Guardian, and it's not touching this. No, it is not. No, no. So I I think he kind of lost. The 70s were his time, (laughs) for sure. So it probably worked out for the best for this film. Um, Yeah, I mean, now I I live in a world where uh, we're going to have sequels to everything, whether we want it or not. Nothing Nothing sacred. And we're going to have director's cuts for everything. I'm not as big a fan of director's cuts as you are. Um, and I, I think part of it is um, it's film to film. But my favorite movie, I've talked about this before, my favorite movie of all time is JFK, which most people don't have the patience to, to sit through the theatrical cut. Never mind uh, the director's cut. But the director's cut weakens that movie so bad. There was stuff that should have, that the stone should have... Just left, left Donnie on the camera floor. Donnie yeah. Darko director's cut, mm-hmm. worst movie. Yeah, Donnie Darko. Sometimes that happens, but uh, yeah. And I think with the Exorcist three, what you're telling, I haven't seen the director's cut, right. but you, you're, you're and not. To my feeling, like what they added didn't add to the movie, and the footage stood out because it looked like lower five than everything else. You could tell that this was inserted into the movie. So mm-hmm. we're gonna review Exorcist three. So yep. let's save that. Yeah, for sure. That was my spot for that. All right, Jason Dubray, and we're we're at the top six now. Top six. This is the, the 90s. The big getting, ones here. It's getting real now. <laughs> Hear the drum roll. <laughs> the gloves come off. <laughs> All right. What's your sixth place? Number six has been mentioned and will be mentioned a lot here. It's one of the ones we're reviewing, and 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 you had it. Uh, you've mentioned it before. Number six for me is Jacob's Ladder, an intensely interesting film. Uh, I, I I wish I could go back to the first time I saw it. When I'm watching this thing and I have no idea where I am and perhaps that's why I like David Lynch as well mm-hmm. is I like to be you know taken by a filmmaker on a journey and Adrian Lynn does that beautifully um, with uh, with Jacob's ladder I thought this might have been even higher and I I think and it was kind of different distractions for me you mentioned you know the the celebrity factor with some people who weren't celebrities when the movie was um, first released. For me, that and I, I don't know what maybe I didn't know the first time I saw it that it was the same writer as Ghost. And knowing that now, I my mind kept going back to Ghost and like there's scenes in the New York subway station uh, which reminded me a lot of scenes from Ghost. And so I, I don't know why I was distracted by Ghost. This time around, but it it was there. Still, it's there's some really frightening moments. We don't know what's going on. We're 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 following along with Tim Robbins' character uh, the whole way, uh, and I think the payoff is is totally worth it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I really like what he did with this. And it's funny because I don't think you like Lynch as much, but this 
this felt Lynchian in some ways. I guess I perhaps a little bit more centered than some of Lynch's stuff. The first time I reviewed uh, Jacob's Ladder for them podcast, this was like really early. I remember saying it felt like almost a lost Terry Gilliam movie. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Because just the madness in it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, there is a lot of that. Uh, so I kind of more connected it to Terry Gilliam, which is much more my jam than David. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. Yeah. Um, but uh, either way, it's in good company. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me in sixth place, and this was not deliberate. It just happened. The sixth sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it's the movie that Shyamalan we went from a relative no name to mm-hmm. you know Hollywood's new Hitchcock. And he's clearly not Hollywood's new Hitchcock. Um, mm. In fact, whenever it's his worst instincts is when he thinks that he's Hitchcock, inserting himself into mm. his movie. Oh yes, yeah, he does the cameo and, thing. Uh, but what I will say about Sixth Sense is that the screenplay is pretty airtight. It is. I, uh, I think the movie works without the twist, which is the genius thing about it. Mm-hmm. If the movie was just about a psychiatrist to help this little boy to deal with his terrible problem of being able to see dead people it would completely work yep but then they throw that twist on it and then all of a sudden it bumps it up a level and i think the thing that bumps it up another level everybody goes on about Haley joel osmond and he is great tony collette she was so good yeah tony collette is the heart mm-hmm. of this movie yeah uh so uh, i think that uh, the stars aligned for this movie Shyamalan would say so himself like they just like everything just set perfectly to make this story. perfect year for it too 99 yeah. once again but yeah. it was one of the films that was not forgotten in 99 i think that it is an unabashed horror classic and i think it earns it uh i wish that shia milan could get to better things and uh, i wish i was more excited about <laughs> where he's been going i thought that the visit was an uptick in his movies I would still have, some bad stuff there, in the visit, but rapping little kid could fucking die. But uh, there was some scary stuff in that movie, and Split was a shaky screenplay saved by an amazing actor, I think. See, I like but, Split a little bit more, but, than, uh, but that's fine. I'm yeah, I, I'm happy that he's not at least in this place of embarrassment and shame, which he did earn with Lady in the Water and The Happening. Like he oh. earned, he earned his fucking. Uh, but movie. I saw it with Unbreakable. Yeah. I was. <laughs> It was the movie Unbreakable was a movie after The Sixth Sense, so everybody was taking him seriously as a filmmaker. And we, when we got the plot twist of that film, I was like, I was ready to laugh out loud, (laughs) hysterically. Are you serious? And I'm looking around at other audience members, like, oh, the man's a genius. Oh, and and I was like, no, no, this is so ridiculous. Also, and I don't want to make this big diatribe on Shyamalan, but here's what you're not allowed to do ever again in any of your movies. This whisper talking thing. <laughs> this talking really intensely. I gotta tell you something to break. The whisper talking drives me fucking crazy. So don't do it anymore. Too much. Too much. Uh, yes, yeah. but uh, I won't deny that it's a great movie and it's all now, the way. Here, here's my question though for you with the sixth sense. Yeah. Does the does the surprise make it less of a horror movie? I don't think so because I like I said, take the twist out of it, it still works. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a scary movie without the twist. Oh, yeah. With the twist, it's kind of... It becomes a very different thing. And almost like a a touch too sentimental. Right. Versus Stir of Echoes, again, which is much higher for me. Um, Was just brutal what happens. And when everything is revealed, it's it's just so horrible. You're not getting this warm, fuzzy, oh, oh. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Shimon always wants to give you the aw shucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I just, that's why I can't, I can't have it higher. As much, I, I really loved the movie when it came out, yeah. and I was happy for its success, but... Uh, Anytime there's a big horror movie that's embraced by everyone, it's usually just good news for the genre. What's your number five? Five you're going to hate. Uh-oh. I think you're going to hate. David Lynch presents Lost Highway? Lost Highway, you call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right yeah. I, yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I love Lost Highway. I, I, it's almost a forgotten movie in the uh, David Lynch... Um, um, canon? The canon, if you, if you will. Uh, and I think I experienced Lost Highway. It was one of the early Lynch films I watched. I watched a few in a, in, in a short period of time. Lost Highway, Wild at Heart, and Blue Velvet, which to me is just absolutely brilliant. But all that kind of led to Mulholland Drive, which I I loved. I, I had it as, as one of the best movies of the first decade of the 20th century. Um, debate as to whether it's a horror movie or not. I think it's a horror movie. And a lot of this I have to credit to uh, Robert Blake, who plays one of the most creepy characters I have ever seen. Um, it's up there with Dennis Hopper's performance in uh, um, in Blue Velvet, and the scene when he is first introduced, and the way that he looks, and the intensity. I think it's probably might be his best film performance. But there's like this hor horrific images happening, and we we get kind of these two parts, and he often will do this thing with these two identities with the same character. Um, but early on, when there's a supposed murder of uh, Bill Pullman's wife, played by Patricia Arquette, um, the the shots of her are so gory. They are as gory as any as any horror movie that you could ever see. But the way it's presented to me is psychologically worse because it's in kind of this grainy videotape quality th uh, thing. Videotapes became a it was a big part of horror kind of in throughout the '90s. And a little bit into the early 2000s before the, the DVD thing started happening. Yeah. Certainly a factor in, in the ring and that and that kind of thing. I I love this movie. I love all of these great cameos. I think it was Richard Pryor's last film. Yeah. He makes an appearance in yeah. there. Um, Here's the thing. Like, yeah, I, I hate to be a broken record, but uh, I don't connect with Lynch. Yeah. And if I was to if I was to include a Lynch movie on this list, I don't. But if I was, mm -hmm. it would be Wild at Heart. Uh, As a horror movie? Well, it's got some it's, horrific moments. Yes, I think it's yeah. the closest to me. But it also of those three movies you discussed actually has a cogent theme and a cogent story. Okay, what what? Well, my two big issues with the uh, Lost Highway is a what's it about, and b. That Richard Pryor cameo mm -hmm. is offensive to me. You found it's it offensive? straight up offensive to me. Why is he in the movie? What role does he play? He's running the auto shop that... Uh, yeah. This... And he's got this weird sort of twitchy affected energy because he's got Parkinson's disease. And that's why he's in the movie. So he can be this weird Lynchian aspect. I don't think so. I think they were I think they were friends yeah what and he wanted to be in he wanted to work and he wanted to be in a film I'm not sure anybody was giving him work at that time yeah. and it's like you were talking about the the Twin Peaks firewalk with me the the weird chick with the too small dress who does the dance in front of everybody mm -hmm. it's this weird Lynchian moment to make mm -hmm. the movie weird and Lynchian and yes I will concede there are some terrifying moments in the movie the scene where the person falls and like 
gets his head jammed into the coffee table. Mm-hmm. Or oh, that's the that's scene grisly. where uh, Richard Blake says, "I'm in your house right now. Call me." I mean, that isolated by itself, terrifying. Much like the scene in Mulholland Drive with the man behind the restaurant by yes. itself is terrifying. But as a cohesive whole, it is nonsense, in my opinion. But it, in Satan, it's it's about Satan creeping into these people's lives, and they've allowed Satan into their lives. And, Again, and this is what happens, and it's very much a deal with the devil, and it's the transference of Robert Loggia's character, this mobster type of guy who was made a deal with the devil, but now it's switched over to Bill Pullman's character. Who then turns into Balthasar Getty for some reason. Uh, but, it's, but it's a switch of yeah. there, because... Again, I, I don't... I guess my major problem with it, and this is throughout Lynch's, is that I guess I don't believe that there's a plaster man. I think to me, he likes putting these disparate images together and leaning back in his chair and congratulating himself, you know? And uh, for me, I'm a story guy. I get disciplined about this shit, you know? If you're not telling me a story, if it's just a series of nightmare images, that can be interesting, but that's about as far as I'll go. And I found Lost Highway to be one of his less interesting numbers. Personally. I, I, I feel but, like, you know, this is, this is I'm getting revved up here, but, but I, I feel like he is, he is trusting his audience to be smarter than most filmmakers right now uh, do not trust their audience. They are going to spoon feed audiences everything. He's trusting his audiences to I will go piece so it together and, and, and take all of these, uh, all of these ideas and try to make them into something that will make Works sense for, for them. It's yeah. like a, it's like a poem. It's like a poem. I mean, and um, maybe what you're going to say is words will not change their definitions. <laughs> um, and then this word means this word no matter what. But when you release something out I'm, as a piece of art, yeah. it is up to, uh, it's up to us as the consumers of the art to put our lives into it. So my interpretation of Lost Highway might be very different than yours versus somebody else's. And to you, that makes it brilliant. To me, I, that, yes, I, that I, makes I, I it, love I love films like that. If it's so open that it can mean anything, then it's the. Bible. I don't think it can it's mean like, anything. It's like it's like you can take from it whatever you want. Then then great. For me, like you don't have to tell us your choice, but make a choice. And I suspect I don't know. I suspect a lot of the times that Lynch doesn't make a choice. Well, the other thing about Lynch is uh, he. He dabbles in all, all kinds of art, mm-hmm. um, music, and that's why I, I think the music in his films are, and, and TV show is brilliant. Um, but I also, uh, he's also a visual artist, and I think he's mostly a visual artist. Yeah. And that's part of the aspect of being a visual artist, I mean, is that you, you create your piece and then you present it to the public, and the public will bring their life experience into it. Sure. And very few filmmakers try that. They're, they're just too scared to do it. And Again. he's 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 been like this from the beginning. Eraserhead, can, I, I I need to watch that movie several times before I can make any sort of sense out of it. It's it's less coherent than any of the movies we've mentioned. Yeah. He has been true to himself his entire career, and it's yeah, it's a and long I career. Think- I, like absolutely, I don't think he's faking it necessarily. Like he is an artist, but mm-hmm. I just think uh, it's more about the f- feelings. Than do, you, about do you like him as a director? Sometimes, but <laughs> anyway, I don't want to derail okay. the whole podcast. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. I think we know how we feel, <laughs> David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to agree on my fifth place, even though it's a tie. 
These are my procedural ties. Okay? Oh, yeah. I guess you could call these horror movies, but they're honestly procedurals. It's a tie between The Silence of the Lambs and Seven. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think they're the two clearly best procedurals of the decade, mm-hmm. and they sort of sort of show the progression. I don't think Seven could exist without Silence of the Lambs. Agreed. But even just six or seven years after Silence of the Lambs, you can see how far we've come mm-hmm. with the maniacal, super ingenious serial killer. Yeah. Uh, and really, the maniacal, super ingenious serial killer is a pretty tired cliche. But in these two movies, it's done about as well as I've seen. Mm-hmm. I couldn't decide how to stack them, so I put them together. Put together. <laughs> Fair enough. And I think one of the differences between you and I as far as our taste in horror, that's a little bit more my bag, those those films. Your yeah. problem is you need to get more fun out of life. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Jonathan Demme, 1991, Silence of the Lambs, a horror movie, sweeps the fucking Oscars. For that reason alone, I will always love Silence of the Lambs. As much as I take issue, as I've mentioned, with uh, Anthony Hopkins getting a Best Actor win for what was clearly a Best Supporting Actor role, I have no problem with Jodie Foster getting it. I think Ted Levine should have been nominated personally. But best director, best picture, I have no problem with mm-hmm. that. And generally speaking, I almost uniformly disagree with the Oscars. Oh, yeah. So that's weird. But whenever we have a year that's good for genre, last year being another great example yes. of that with both Get Out and The Shape of Water, like Love Them or Hate Them got some good attention. Mm-hmm. And with the success of It, you know, it was a good year for horror. It was. 91 was a fantastic year for horror in that, you know, Silence of the Lambs ushered in what a lot of what horror was going to be looking like for the next for, decade. For a brief period, horror became mainstream again. We're going to see movies like Seven and The Bone Collector and like name, what is the the spider web one with fucking Morgan Freeman, whatever. Uh, we're going to be seeing derivations of mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs forever. It kind of arrived the same time Nirvana did and had a That's similar effect. Yeah. Nirvana showed up and all of a sudden every every band that came out was trying to be Nirvana. Yeah. And and Silence of the Lambs came out and every thriller that came out subsequently yeah. was trying to be Silence of the Lambs. And none of them, none of them came close. No. They could raise the bar as far as stakes, they could raise the bar as far as violence, but as far as engaging us emotionally and making a fantastic story feel incredibly grounded and real. Silence of the Lambs is unbeatable. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, like I said before, that it was a stronger movie in 1991 than it is today just because it's been diluted by everybody who copied it. But if you could erase Mm -hmm. from your memory all of that shit in between and watch Silence of the Lambs in 1991, I think you'd be blown away by it. I think that you would understand watching it now. Oh, no, that's a good movie. Maybe a little bit dated. But the fact is... It's one of the best movies of the 90s. Not one of the best horror movies of the 90s. One of the best movies of the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, its influence cannot be understated. 
uh, I will uh, be yet another critic adding to the pile of critics to say Silence of the Lambs is one of the greatest horror movies ever yeah. made. <laughs> but it's kind of like reviewing Jaws or reviewing The Exorcist after a point. It's like, what more can be said or the shiny. <laughs> about the Silence of the Lambs? Like, what do you want from your horror movie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, uh, do you want suspense? Great. Do you want sympathetic uh, villains and a sympathetic hero? Great. Do you want it to feel grounded and real? Great. Do you want it to affect you emotionally? Great. Mm-hmm. Do you want an open-ended uh, ending that will leave you uncertain about mm-hmm. how safe you are in your house? All of these boxes are checked. Yeah. I, I think in... Every few years, there's a horror movie that comes out that will change things where we get too too much of the trying to copy and be uh, another version of a classic horror movie. And so we need these moments. I, I, th- I feel like horror was stuck a little bit. You might disagree with me. Um, kind of leading into the early 90s. And horror was not subtle. There was nothing subtle about it. It was, you know, people with chainsaws or masks or uh, horribly scarred. With, you know, you know all the ones I'm mentioning here. Yeah. But this, like, <clears throat> super villain uh, monster who was killed off in a lot of these movies, but yet somehow they managed to squeeze in another five films after that and have some explanation after, like, characters are being decapitated, yet somehow they're coming back from the dead or there's a movie where they're in hell or something. Well, they, they were stuck and they needed something which was grounded in some really horrifying place in reality like the Silence of the Lambs. And I, I, I feel that um, at that particular time, which I, I, you know, you know, being a little bit more aware of my surroundings in the 1990s than, than in the 80s when I was quite a bit younger, um, I, I still feel like it was a naive time um, and people would see this person who looks a little bit helpless trying to move furniture and you would go and help that person. Now you're watching um, you're, you're watching the kidnapping scene with Buffalo Bill in this movie like how could this woman be so stupid to go and talk to a stranger like that? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just felt like something like this could happen in the city of Saskatoon. There could be somebody, it'd be the perfect type of city at that time to have a, you know, closeted serial killer because nobody would think about it. And so every aspect of this movie works, even Hannibal Lecter, as I I feel like in Silence of the Lambs, he was a realistic villain. I think a lot, some of the sequels made him into some sort of, a little bit more like a a Jason or a Freddy. Yeah. um, Or he couldn't be beat but in this one I, I i i believed it i mean this is like the hannibal lecter character that gets, gets out of hand thomas harris kind of parented that that character to death as far as i'm concerned yeah. but in this in this incarnation in silence of the lambs a because he's a supporting player which i think is a best i I, I, would, I would agree i mean i i wouldn't have voted for him for best actor no um, um but because he's a sporting player, he becomes really much more interesting, and you kind of wonder what he's going to contribute. And instead of helping to solve the case, he points her in the right direction, but Clarice solves the case. It becomes sort of this sneaky thing about him escaping. The funny thing is, I think I said this before when we talked about Silence of the Lambs, is 
I love the scene where he escapes. Like I love the whole the sequence. sequence. But it's it amazing. is a mini. It's a mini movie within the movie. And it if it didn't exist, much like the twist in the Sixth Sense, the movie still works. It, it would, yeah. Right, but it's interesting. Like in a structural story, and like from a writing standpoint, you've got this very clear through line. There's a woman in a pit. And she's on a clock. He's going to starve her for a week or so, and then he's going to kill her. They need to find her as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. So we're all on. This next Buffalo Bill will, victim, will Scott Glenn and Jodie Foster be able to figure it out before yeah. she's dead? And that's like an hour and 15 minutes of the movie. And then there's 20 minutes of Hannibal Lecter escapes. And then there's a half an hour that resolves the rest of the like Again, I don't want to leave it from the movie. I'm not saying cut it. I'm just saying that it's interesting that that entire sequence could leave the movie. And the movie wouldn't necessarily be hurt by it, at least mm-hmm. from the story angle. I'm glad it's there. It's an exciting sequence, and it's sort of what makes Hannibal Lecter scary. Until then, we've just sort of seen him talk. We've seen him play, like, yeah, like psychological what, what, games. But we find out that he is incredibly dangerous. Right? Because the, the first time I saw the movie, I mean, the Silence of Lambs, like, oh, this is the scariest movie you're ever going to see. Right. And watching it as a 12-year-old, and there was a lot of some of the sexual stuff that I was just too naive to understand right. about it. Um, and But just w- watching, um, I'm like, what's so dangerous about this guy? I mean, he kind of likes her to tell personal stuff about herself. And, you know, he seems to, like, kind of enjoy that a little bit too much. But why is this guy as feared as he is, why do they have him in like these special cages and the famous sequence where he's on a gurney mm-hmm. um, with that half hockey mask there? Um, it's like it's so overblown. Well, no, you there get to see it. You, there there is a reason, reason. And, and we have to have that sequence in there to see to see the reason. And it's uh, it's just so well directed. And I, I think I I I think I. One of my flaws at that particular time was I, I was big into Oliver Stone and like very flashy filmmaking and lots of camera tricks and that kind of thing. That wasn't Jonathan Demi's style. No. Um, but his use of music was amazing and just just a, you know panning in on some object and then it was all important. And so I don't think I got that in the first viewing how well directed that movie is. Right. And it's um, so I, I'm, I'm glad that it did as well as it did. And you don't get, you know, maybe once every 20 or 30 years that you're going to get a horror movie that's going to be embraced the way that The Silence of the Lambs no, absolutely. is. But I did feel like it's Clary Starling's story. And they found the perfect actor in Jodie Foster, who I think it's her best performance. And she's given a lot of good performances, The Accused and even Nell and, and some movies like that. Um, but it, it it played on like Jodie Foster herself is such an intelligent woman, and Clary Starling is an intelligent woman. But at that time, surrounded by men and in a profession where women had, yeah. were, was not. There's a, a scene that crystallizes that for me mm-hmm. early in the movie where she's sent to this storage unit to find this piece of evidence. Turns out to be a severed head in a jar. Yeah, but. She can't get the fucking garage door open. She mm-hmm. gets out of Jack, gets it open as much as possible. And then she hands her card to this guy who's helping her out. Yeah. Basically, yeah, she has this line. Uh, if this garage door is to fall on me or 
something else. Please uh-huh. call his yeah. number. <laughs> yes. And I fucking love that scene so much because in any other horror movie, Clarice wouldn't have done that and we would have been more scared for her. Mm-hmm. But she's too fucking smart to put herself in a position yes. like that. Yes. And they established that right away. Like, that was a year of... Um, Thelma and Louise came out mm-hmm. that same year and it was, you know, the the feminist film and you had, you know, women controlling the action. Um, but I I think, and, and Jodie Foster beat out Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon for Best Actress, but deservedly so. And I think that was as much of a oh. uh, strong point as far as a feminist hero. Having both of them nominated would have split the vote. They probably fucked They split themselves. the vote, yeah. Jo- you know, Jodie Foster, but she was winning... All along, she was winning prizes that year, and deservedly so. I Another female performance that I think gets ignored over Anthony Hopkins and some of the more flashier roles. Mm-hmm. Brooke Smith plays yeah. Catherine Martin, the woman at the bottom of the yeah. well. Yeah, it's, She's in a bad position. Uh, you talked about the scene where she's kidnapped. Uh, why would you walk up to this person? He actually uses the same tactic that a famous uh, serial killer used to use, um, Ted Bundy. Yeah. Would wear a fake cast. Mm-hmm. and be trying to do some task but oh my arm it hurts it hurts the woman volunteers to help he gets her to back into the van the attack takes place uh, he sort of charms his way either through genuine warmth or through you know pity and that's how she's gotten him once she's in the bottom of the pit she is a fighter oh like, she's fighting yeah uh, she, she's begging to him in a way that's kind of like you know trying to humanize herself and, and pleading pleading mm-hmm. and when that doesn't work she was she's willing to play dirty pool you know well the the, the dog the dog she's so threatening to kill precious, the dog with her hands yeah buffalo bill has this dog precious yeah and i mean you tell this woman loves animals but uh she precious wasn't when she's trying to lure precious in there um and like she's she starts cursing or whatever and you're just like yeah. yeah, if I was in this position too, I'd be calling the dog a little shit, you know. Yeah. It's like, come on, precious, come on. Or just the early scene and where she's so at good. the bottom of the pit and she starts to try to climb it. And then she sees she's all these finger. broken fingernails. Oh, and that's, so and I'm the, not the first person in this pit. Yeah, This and just came another level. And that's terror. an earned scream. Yeah. You know, you'll have the scream in horror movies, but that is earned. And it would seem like, oh, that's an easy role to play, right? No, no. 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 no, no, you're absolutely right. No, no. Uh, I think she did a really, really good job, and you wanted her to get found. Um, and again, <laughs> I love that she starts screaming at Clarice when Clarice finally finds her way to the basement. That's the other. Uh, moment, she yeah. tells Catherine, "Just stay there. I'll be right back." And she's like, "Don't you fucking leave me, you fucking bitch!" Yeah, like, like, I have been at the bottom totally of this hole for days. Yeah. You're the only help. I and now. Yeah. And you don't hate her for that. You completely are no. with her. Like, yeah. yeah, I understand you being upset, but she really needs to deal with gum before she can get you out yeah, of that she hole. Does. Yeah, she does. Yes, she does. Um, and I well, talked about on, on that. I mean, the climax is so good. Oh. It you, you you don't know. You kind of know how it's all going to end up. But still, no matter how many times I watch that movie, I hold my breath. He's got the night vision goggles, mm-hmm. and she's totally in the dark. And that is so well filmed by... Yeah, that's an amazing sequence. But for me, it's the moment of recognition between yes. Jodie Foster oh, so and, and Ted Levine. It's some she's of the best film acting. And he's giving her all the right answers, but there's something a little weird about him. And she's clocking it. But as far as she knows, there's an arrest taking place in another state, which is taking care of all of his mm-hmm. problems. And then the moth flies by. Mm-hmm. And she sees it, 
and he sees it and they look at each other and they recognize each other and then the action scene starts but that moment between the two of them is so perfect it's one of the most perfect moments in an almost perfect movie like uh, as far as the misdirection as oh they're going to break into one house while Jodie Foster's yeah. going into the other one I didn't fall for that not even in 1991 mm-hmm. because what's this movie about Yeah, it's about Clarice Starling this movie doesn't end without Clarice Starling at least having a face off with Buffalo Bill like mm-hmm. no part of me did believe that but they still made that moment so strong well and she earned it too yeah. because she did her homework yeah like she's the one going around and and, and then she goes to the house and, and talks to that father who quite clearly had no idea what his daughter was actually yeah. doing. And But because, that's the other part about it, because she's a female, it's, you know, it's not uh, Scott Glenn that's coming in there and just interviewing the father. She's like, okay, I was a teenage girl at one point. Where would I be hiding the stuff that would be kind of compromising? And then, and then she looks around the room. She knows where to look. And then she gets the key to pretty much the whole the whole thing, and um, yeah, it, it just I I don't think a lot of movies of this type would take the time to develop the story in that way and have those quieter scenes. Um, the interesting thing about our conversation too is that, like at the time it came out, it was really all about those scenes between Jodie Foster and. Uh, Anthony Hopkins. The coming attractions just showed that. Yeah. Yeah. And those are great scenes. Don't get me wrong, but that's not what we've been talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in a way, I, I'm I'm not trying to take anything away from Anthony Hopkins, by the way, I think he did a really good job with Hannibal Lecter, but in a way for me, as time goes on, he's one of the less interesting things about the movie Mm -hmm. to me. I'm much more locked into Clarice Starling trying to solve this case and rescue Catherine from the well and facing off against Buffalo Bill. I like the stuff with mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins, but again, it's kind of been overblown. I, I initially, like when when I saw it, I thought this is Jodie Foster's movie. When I saw the Academy Awards, I think that was the first year I watched. Well, that's not completely true. I think I maybe watched it the year before. It was one of the first years where I watched the Academy Awards live, and um, Foster won. I was. I wasn't surprised in the least, but when Best Actor was announced, it was Anthony Hopkins. For some reason, I thought they were announcing a different category. Right. And I, I very much had in my head that Nick Nolte was going to win for The Prince of Tides, right. which would have been my vote, because I think that's what he did in that movie was very, very difficult to do. I think it's his best film performance, that and Affliction, which is another dark, oh, great so film from him. Um, and then I was kind of, really, be- Best Leading Actor... Anthony I would Hopkins won. Supporting with no problem, yeah. by the way. But for some reason, but, it rubs me the wrong way that it's best actor. I I feel like, particularly the actors branch, maybe have gone would have gone for him because, technically, some of the stuff he was doing, was unbelievable. In those scenes, um, and and his impact is, is very, felt throughout the entire movie. He has a very composed. Movie charming evil which we hadn't seen before yeah in a way it echoed for me and this might seem like a weird pull but to alan rickman in die hard yes this very professional composed evil yes yeah that's fair it's it's a a weird connection but i've always sort of thought like Mm -hmm. yeah it's in a similar environment we we kind of 
in a way are engaged by this guy and think he's smart and it is interesting the way he's able to you know talk people to death Migs in the next room or uh you know the way he's able to completely pull her psychologically apart within talking to her for a few minutes oh yeah uh he has power he has gravitas generally speaking and i'm more this is more about the movies and books that happen after this mm-hmm. than silence mm-hmm. of the lambs generally speaking the more thomas harris focuses on Hannibal Lecter, mm-hmm. the less I like it. <laughs> I wonder if that was influenced by the success of the film. I guarantee and, you it was. And, <laughs> you know, he, he knew he could sell more books if he focused on... Because you're right, over time, Hopkins' character... And I think he was even... Even by he was sequel, put in, in Even by Hannibal. In some, some posters, it was Anthony Hopkins, then Jodie Foster. I think the credits in the film say Jodie Foster, then Anthony Hopkins. They should. Yeah, because Foster drives the... The film we're so talking much, about it as if but, it's a flaw in the film and it's not he's great but and <laughs> when you see to me when she is finally unveiled all the stuff about the lambs yeah um and the slaughter of the lambs and having to go back to the farm and like not not having this happy ending to her story just seeing how it's almost like this relief it's like, thank you so much you know there's, there's something i don't know why i go to that moment now it's not something I paid much attention to my first few times seeing it, but last time is like nobody has given this guy this thing, you know, probably since he was free and he was a psychiatrist, and so um, yeah, it's it's in it's a, such an interesting um, chemistry that those two had. And it just didn't work with Hannibal because you can. It's not like James Bond. You can't replace Jodie Foster as much as I like Julianne Moore. Yeah, jo- Jodie Foster had to be in Hannibal, and as subtle as Jonathan Demme is, Ridley Scott is not a subtle filmmaker. I love Ridley Scott, um, but it, it just wasn't. And I liked it a lot, and it was grisly, and it was you know Hannibal is a horror movie, full out horror movie. Um, but it just doesn't have the style or the no. subtlety of Silence of the Lambs. And I, I just still feel creeped out by the fact that, and we'd hear about these stories before and after of these people who are serial killers that it's like person Never. next door. And I, I just, I, I believe that these people can exist. And, uh, and I just think it was a, a highly influential film and there was, a very good movie that was influenced by it called Seven. There have been a whole series of other really bad ones that. <laughs> it's, there's the good and bad. I also think it's interesting for a movie that. I mean, yes, it has the cliche of the super Machiavellian genius serial killer that's mm-hmm. never going away. But it obviously, I think, handles it better than, than probably any other. Movie. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, in spite of that, the movie manages to ground itself in reality. And yet, in spite of being grounded in reality, at least with Silence of the Lambs, if we take away all the other Lecter movies, part of me, I won't speak for you, was kind of happy <laughs> that Lecter escaped the end of the movie. Me too, yeah. And uh, those, those, those two guards didn't do anything to deserve the death that they got. 
those ambulance workers didn't deserve to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't like the former <laughs> warden of the prison. Yeah, He's about held... to be eaten by, by Anthony Hopkins, but as smarmy and shitty as he is, he doesn't deserve to die at the hands of a cannibal. But somehow this movie exists in the real world and lets us be okay with that ending. But yet it's almost, there's a bit of a, there's some karma in there because his very first scene with Jodie Foster is so smarmy. Yeah. Like Baltimore can be a fun town if you know the right people. It's like he's so obviously sexually harassing her. Um, Now, does that, do you deserve to be killed by a... No, a cannibal. If that happens, but did 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 Mink deserve to die for saying he could smell her private parts? Uh, probably not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's the interesting line. He kills innocent people, and he kills people who he considers rude and kind of deserve it. They get into that in later books and movies. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, all we know about him is pretty much horrible. And he calls Clarice and says, "You have nothing to fear from me." So I guess we let him off the hook of that. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting that generally speaking. It's not like the end of Halloween where, where Michael Myers yeah. is out there somewhere and yeah. now we're scared to go home, right? No, we, we're we kind feel of okay. like weirdly comforted by the yeah. fact that the people who die there. are going to deserve to die, but <laughs> whether they deserve it or not. But the, the other thing that's great about it is the, the build up to this guy. Um, you know, there's, there's several scenes before we actually see him, and you expect to see, you know, Monster. one of these monsters from a typical horror movie. He's this calm guy standing up straight. Yeah. yeah. Good morning. Hair you streak know. back. Yeah. Just good morning. I just want to chat. I'm I just want to chat. Here. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. is the opposite of what you would think, but then, then he, you know, she gets real. into her, and then she's just as prepared as she thought she was. She was not prepared to encounter this guy. Uh, I do think that Sansa Lambs definitely lives up to its hype. I think if you watching it for the first time today, its impact will be lessened than when it was in 1991. Which is too bad, yeah. But it's an important epic horror movie. Mm-hmm. debate you you did not have it on the list because you couldn't bring yourself to a place where you would consider it a horror movie but martin scorsese's cape fear um is at points so over the top yet i did (laughs) but i did believe it i mean i did believe it and this is in fact a remake and if you watch uh the the robert mitchum which i have yeah and and of course he makes an appearance in this film the um and gregory peck as well makes an appearance that um they're they're both similar stories but totally different but each is equally horrifying and i i like everything about it uh, same year silence of the lambs and you kind of think in that year nobody else can can touch the horror thriller genre but i thought cape fear did a great job of it um you might criticize de niro's performance as being too much but it is it's logical like this guy and where he comes from the movie and his his twisted notion of theology um uh has has a huge impact in this 
great performances from Juliette Lewis, who we've mentioned uh, a, a few times here, um, and Jessica Lange is in it. Uh, and Julian I, 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 Baker. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, and. And his death is a very uh, memorable, very memorable. Yeah. All the deaths are too. I, I think it had a huge influence for me as far as movie acting too. Just De Niro's performance, but I really like Nick Nolte in there as well. Nick Nolte um, w was a, a great kind of uh, uh, use the term straight man mm -hmm. to De Niro's. Well, you can see him being psychopath. Pushed. He's being pushed to the edge of crazy by, yeah. by De Niro. And he has his flaws, which get exploited, and yeah. he is cheating. I Ileana Douglas, as well, gives I a great her. performance, short performance. So there, there's so much horrific stuff in here. Um, it It's big. It's entertaining from start to finish. Very few remakes um, hold water with me, but this is, this is a movie I, I love, go back to time and time again. I love Scorsese. I do love Scorsese. And... I think personally, towards the end, when the we're having the that storm and the boat the houseboat in there, some of the effects of the boat really looks not that great to me. Like uh, when the boat's falling apart, it looks well, like and what a, Scorsese does with the camera, where it kind of goes upside down at one point. It looks like a toy boat in some of the like far off shots. It just mm -hmm. doesn't look legit to mm -hmm. me. And there's an over-the-top scene Scorsese loves his religious allegory towards the yeah. end of the movie where Nick Nolte is about to kill uh, De Niro. Mm -hmm. De Niro gets washed out into the water, but he gets this uh, uh, stigmata, stigmata yeah. suddenly in his hands out yeah. of nowhere. And it's just a few moments like that. It just was just... It's too big. Just and, well, it's too much. And, uh, and De Niro's speaking in tongues. Yeah. At that well, point, I, too. I, I liked him speaking I love that. in tongues, but <clears throat> I, get, I get the religious allegory. And you know what? I probably would have got it without the stigmata. You know what I mean? This is uh, top five. We're having yeah. trouble here. I mean, Number four, uh, you'll agree with me, though. Rob Reiner's Misery. Yes, good. Uh, I think that movie's fantastic. Yeah. I think Kathy Bates is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I think James Caan doesn't get enough credit. He doesn't, no. no. Uh, he's this like super energetic, vibrant, passionate actor, and they got him strapped to a bed yes. for most of the movie. And he has to act the shit out of it. Oh, and yeah. he does. So, yeah, I've always loved Misery. I think it's one of the uh, most personal books to Stephen mm -hmm. King. And uh, he gave it to Rob Reiner, basically, because Rob Reiner directed Stand By Me. He did a great so, job with it. Until he, you know, tied his wagon to Shyamalan. Rob Reiner was kind of his most trusted collaborator. And you look at Stand By Me, and you look at Misery, and mm -hmm. you understand why. So, yes, easily fourth place Misery. I gotta say the hobbling story. scene, which by the way is not in the book. Uh, yeah, yeah, the hobbling scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. Out of every movie that we talk about, that's probably the hardest thing to watch out of all of these movies. Mm -hmm. I find it absolutely excruciating. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So misery, yes, yeah, great movie. suspense in there oh, too. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's not a gory, gory film. I mean, looking at his legs, that's not the greatest uh, image, but it's not a gory film. But it is it is so good. So I'm, I'm glad. I'm happy that it was even higher on your list because yeah. I, I was really wrestling with where to place Misery. I love Misery. Always yeah. love Misery. Number three. Yeah. And I'm going with, I would argue we, we talked about some influential horror movies, but I, I, I don't think you can get any more influential as far as truly being horror than Scream. Right. What's Craven? It was number three for me. Um, I, it, it's an important horror movie. And it to me is a true horror movie. I mean, the the opening scene with with Drew Barrymore is scary. Uh, it, it is actually scary. It's it's not. There are things in there that are self aware, and this is to me. It's kind of 
what Wes Craven does with this is similar to what Clint Eastwood did with Unforgiven. It was kind of taking aspects of his career to this point as a horror movie director and um, kind of making fun of them in a, in a satirical way. But I think he was more successful in Scream than the other the sequels in still creating some really, really scary, horrible moments that would have fit in well with any slasher film. The balance is the most right. And, and the climax is... Uh, is bloody and even though there there's some really like people coming back from the dead when we think they're dead and it plays on all of those those horror movie cliches but these are very frightening characters that are doing horrible things to to these people pure pure horror but it's it still is funny I was surprised that it was funny because I don't think I knew how much of a satire it was when I first saw the, it the scares worked more than the laughs for you first time yeah yeah, it did. Yeah. Well, uh, we sort of have another tie in number three. We both put Scream there. I Good. let it share position with Scream 2 is the thing. I, oh, you I put, put them together. There. Okay. Uh, the thing is, when I first saw Scream 2, I would have actually made the argument that I thought it was better than Scream 1. I've sort of flipped on that now. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I was kind of expecting Scream 2 to suck. Mm -hmm. And what it did is, is it successfully lampooned horror sequels. Yes. Yeah. Which just was enough of an angle on mm -hmm. it. Between that and the killing of the Randy character. Yes. Which I thought was genuinely shocking and strong because we didn't see... I didn't see that death coming and I didn't see it coming when it did. Like, it was a genuinely shocking moment. We thought he was going to survive. He's the nerd, the movie nerd who knows all the angles. He was with us through the first movie. Yeah. He's their inside baseball guy. He's yeah. sort of the most person that we identify with as a nerdy horror crowd and they kill him mm -hmm. brutally and then all of a sudden oh this movie has stakes it's not just silly mm -hmm. um i mean if i had to mm -hmm. only put one of them on the list yes i guess i would put scream one but i decided to let them share mm -hmm. the company i also think that scream for all the things it did right as far as balancing the horror and the comedy it was genius that there was two killers yeah, that's right. Uh, it's because a lot of the stuff, you know, they, they set up Billy or the, the boyfriend to be this red herring, so you cross him off the list. Because mm -hmm. the movie really wants you to think it's Billy, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and yeah. then uh, then it is Billy. He just has backups. So. just yeah. <laughs> so, so all the things where we're like, oh, he couldn't have possibly done that because you he was him off the list because you're he's only, having sex with Nev Campbell. Yeah. So how is he? You know, you cross him off the list. So I seen Rose McGowan in half or whatever. Yeah, that's gone in the second movie. Uh, mm -hmm. In the second movie, I didn't see Laurie Metcalf coming, but the Timothy mm -hmm. Oliphant character, the way he was only there for a few scenes at a time, yeah, yeah. I kind of thought by process of elimination. Mm -hmm. But that's what it was. It wasn't that I figured it out. It was basically process mm -hmm. of elimination. I might maybe should have seen Laurie Metcalf for the fact what's Laurie Metcalf doing in this movie. movie. Right? And it's kind of like the Henry Winkler type of casting. You take a sitcom, at the time a sitcom actor. I mean, yeah. I don't think she had the Broadway chops that she has now. Yeah. And, and and put her in in this thing, but it is it is also comedic. Yeah. So it it is okay to have some comedic some comedians involved with the. Uh, and I would not, series. for the record, put Scream three or four on this same level. I think one no. and two are way better than three and four. Four, I had such low expectations for that maybe it's because it was better than I expected that yeah. that I liked it. Three was a giant disappointment for me. Because right. um, I thought, okay, now that they have something going here, because. And if I remember correctly, when Scream 2 came out, it, it got better reviews than Scream. 
I think Entertainment Weekly had well, it as an, an, an like A or, or something like that. And, and that might have been the memo got out. Oh, you can actually like a horror movie. And yeah, yeah so that's, it was maybe that, that kind of influence. Number two, I'm starting to worry. Number two, all right. I don't think you'll worry about this one. I like it. Uh, I had it higher than you did. Uh, seven. Right. Directed by David Fincher. Um, to me, this is the ultimate David Fincher film. Um, Fight Club is great. You could, maybe from an angle, different angle, claim that Fight Club could have been considered a horror movie. I don't think it's enough of a horror movie. This is this is purely horrific. I, I'm not sure I got it the first time. Every time I watch Seven, it's like, that is absolutely awful. I mean, yeah. who comes up with who comes up with these ideas? Um, and I, again, I, but at the same time, I love the they, they knew how to, which would not be possible again in 2018, but they knew how to set up uh, a serial killer for a movie. And so, big spoiler alert: if you haven't seen Seven, you know maybe fast forward <laughs> or do something here. But there's these kind of these phone phone conversation. And I hear this voice, and I'm like, that sounds a lot like Kevin Spacey. There's a reason. And for that. then, but he wasn't in the credits. Not if they both. And yeah. and then he shows up. Holy crap, it is Kevin Spacey. And, and then, his character's made even creepier now by context. And... Well, yeah, there is the, the climax of the film. He is talking about how evil pedophiles are and and all this stuff. And, and so that was maybe a touch distracting watching it to get ready for 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 this. Um, but it's it, it holds up. To me, this is a 90s movie that holds up. I don't know if you found anything that was out of date or distracting about it. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of before Gwyneth Paltrow was Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, and, and she gives a, a, a strong performance. And, I, I mean, that's another movie where I I didn't know, much like the characters, I did not know what was going to happen no. in the climax of It of feels the film. like a familiar convention, but you don't know where it's going. Don't know where it's going at any point. And this guy is totally in control, and he is much like his, his said throughout. I mean, we're, you know, anytime we think, okay, you know, Morgan Freeman's in control. I didn't think Brad Pitt was ever in control. His <laughs> character is just too young and too impulsive and too interested in being a hotshot detective, which we've seen that dynamic, you know, in things like Lethal Weapon movies, this this buddy idea, but it was it was Take elevated. and. And I like that it's a detective that's actually going to a library and doing this homework and has some, you know, is well read. Um, Friedman was terrific in it. Pitt was terrific. I mean, I'm not sure that I like his performance in Seven as much as in California, but he he served the character so well. He was believable at that particular time. He was, he was the right okay. guy for the job. He was okay with playing Mills as a guy who was over his head. A lot yeah. of a lot of movie stars want to be in control yeah. and have it all figured out. Yeah. And uh, he was not in control. He did not have it no, figured out. No. And, and he had a huge anger problem. And, and he just wanted to go and beat the crap out of You uh, get the feeling like character. he's never read a book in his life. No. And he he's hasn't. very much like from the gut type mm -hmm. of guy. And we but know people like, like this. You like him. You still yeah. like him, but yeah. Yeah. So you only have one more to list. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume it's your number two because you've already mentioned my number one. If it isn't, I'm going to assume that you're going to be consumed with regret and shame mm -hmm. for not including Tremors. 
on your list. <laughs> is Tremors your number two? Tremors is number two, motherfuckers. <laughs> Are you serious? I am absolutely Tremors. serious. I am absolutely serious. Name a better monster movie from the 90s than Tremors. Mimic. Bullshit. <laughs> Name a better monster movie than Tremors <laughs> from the 90s. I think that the balance of the humor and the horror is great. I think that the creatures are 100% original. I think the dynamic between Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward is absolutely hilarious. You just love these guys. Uh, it's basically the floor is lava, the movie. <laughs> this land shark thing will shoot out its tentacles mm -hmm. and drag you down to your death. Mm -hmm. It's funny. It's scary. It's over the top. My dad took me to see it in 1990. I remember seeing the trailer for it on TV and I just had this good feeling about mm -hmm. it. And it was one of my favorite theatrical experiences ever. Seeing this movie with my dad in 1990. I couldn't, okay. see, it. I couldn't see it by myself. My dad had to take me. Yes. I was still that young. Yeah. But this was everything that I loved about horror movies. Now maybe it belongs more to the 80s than to the 90s as far as like its aesthetic. But I straight up love Tremors, unapologetically. Mm -hmm. Number two would seem high to people, but for the record, my number two of the 80s was An American Werewolf in London. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I can have, get behind that There's choice. no stigma to comedy being in your, in your, in your, in your monster movies. Mm -hmm. I think Tremors is amazing. I think that all of the sequels are lame, diminishing just returns. But mm -hmm. I love Tremors. Mm -hmm. And I'm shocked it didn't make your list at all. I don't no, think that it not anywhere close. I wouldn't think that it would be as high for me. I mean, it's personal. I love Tremors. I think it's mm -hmm. just a great, fun movie. But to not be on your list at all, tisk tisk. Well, when when did the weight of the world crush your spirit, Jason? <laughs> as you know, I I, I like Tremors. <laughs> yeah. I don't love Tremors. Right. But what I'm hearing in you is this amazing personal experience you Enjoy. had going to this movie with your dad and and seeing this movie that you were had a good feeling about and then exceeded your expectations absolutely and so i i will not fault you for any of that i mean that i have some sentimental ones on here yeah. um so uh it's fine I, I i would label it as a horror movie i just it's never had that kind of impact i, I watched it the first time and maybe it's the movie theater experience that I'm missing here watched it for the first time as a midnight movie on CTV and thought oh this is better than it seems but to me it's a little bit even even the original which is by far the best it was still to me too cartoonish hmm. right. like to me Scream is a funnier movie than Tremors right. hmm. and because like it actually made me laugh it didn't feel like they were planning to try to make me laugh here the buddy dynamic Ballinero. uh is, is is good it's good and they they've tried to duplicate that in all the sequels and failed miserably each and every time yeah um fred ward and kevin bacon are terrific actors i think they're probably better than this material right. uh but kind of the buddy dynamic of morgan freeman and brad pitt in this particular genre is so much stronger and so, I mean, different animal entirely. It's, it, I mean, comparing you know apples and yeah. pineapples, perhaps here. It's but this, this how do you compare movie. Tremors and yeah. Seven? Because they're they're completely different films. Uh, but I'm really surprised. I, I could see this being in like your 
like 25 to 20 range right. and I'd be going along with it a little bit more. Right. Um, but yeah, two, I can't believe it. Yeah, no regrets for me for the <laughs> yeah. record yet. It's such a personal experience to you that I, I don't fault you for this choice. Right. It's just, again, I, as I said, I think we look for different things in horror movies. Well, generally speaking, scare me with the horror movies. And I got, well, maybe it was a little bit scary when I first saw it, the idea of this tentacle monster. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's a big, proud bee monster movie. Mm-hmm. And you just don't see them done. And again, that balance of lightness and stakes, mm-hmm. you still kind of feel it. When Walter gets killed by that creature yes. and they pull him in, and you're like, no, not Walter. There's some unexpected deaths in there, which was nice. Um, uh, Michael Gross playing against type from Family Dog. Yeah, yes, ties, that's and true. Like, there's just this, uh, again, the moment that I fell in love with the movie in the theater was when the creature breaks into their rec room. Mm-hmm. And the camera pans behind them, and there's just this wall of guns. And Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre just mm-hmm. start firing bullet after bullet in this creature. Mm-hmm. And in any other monster movie, we would have seen that creature break through the wall. We would have heard some gunshots, and everybody would have lowered their heads. And that would have been the last we would have heard from those characters. Mm-hmm. Nope. They, they were significant characters. <laughs> nope. I love Tremors. I will not apologize D- for it. And you don't need <laughs> to apologize. I mean, it's just we have our different things here, and... I'm surprised it's just number two. I mean, yeah. I, like even if you're talking about number five or something, I'd be like, yeah, I could see it because you really do like, really do like Tremors, and and I mean, I, I'm sounding like I don't like it at all here, but I really do like, and I even some of the sequels I I have found passable. Yeah. Um. But uh, but yeah, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't even consider it. And like, well, wait till oh. you hear my number one. <laughs> oh, oh, we're getting ready. All right. Okay, so my obviously my my choices are going to be pretty pretty standard. To me, that was the most just as a great film. Um, you, you you can't say it's not a great film. Highly influential. Um, I'm not sure it scared me the first time I saw it, but I don't think I fully understood everything that happened when I was 12 years old, and right. I. I first saw it, but it's The Silence of the Lambs. Jonathan Demme, you could argue that it maybe is one of it and maybe The Exorcist are the two of the best directed horror movies of all time. Um, Introduced uh, Hannibal Lecter. I mean, the books introduced Hannibal Lecter, of course. Um, Certainly a factor in Manhunter a few years before that. But, uh, like, it's, it's a rare movie, I think, I think the studio threw it out in February of that year, thinking, oh, this will be just some dumb horror movie that's only in theaters for two or three weeks. Yeah. And it became so big. Um, I think they were predicting that it was going to be up for, for a ton of Academy Awards uh, a year before because it was out before the Academy Awards of 1990 happened. Um, I obviously, I, 91 was such an important year for me. Uh, I love so many movies. We've talked about The Fisher King. I've mentioned JFK, um, uh, Bugsy, Prince of Tides, uh, um, Boys in the Hood, uh, Grand Canyon. But to me, I keep going back to The Silence of the Lambs. And while some things maybe are, especially in the costumes and the looks, uh, are very, very early 90s, the performances are so strong and there's subtle things that Jonathan Demme he wasn't really known as a horror movie director I think this might have been the could be wrong was this the only horror movie he made I guess the only but, straight but he, horror movie yeah but he did some he did some things that nobody else would think about and you would not pick up on one viewing of this film and you watch it 
time and time again, and when we're going to talk about it, um, just each time I find something different in it. I, to me, it's a classic. It's one of the the greatest movies of all time. I think it's one of the greatest horror movies of all time, while it also could be labeled as a psychological thriller, perhaps more so than horror. But I, I just could not get past this being the best movie uh horror movie of the 1990s the approach is strangely gentle it almost feels like a louis mall film like uh, he, mm-hmm. he'll, he'll do it like rough subjects like a movie like damage about a father who's having an affair with his son's wife yeah but treat it with this real gentle kind of mm-hmm. perspective but then when it's uh, not gentle oh. well yeah. horrible things are happening yeah. but it's being presented in this weird matter of fact way right like i believe I believed everything about it. Right. I, I believe that this could happen. I believed in the early 1990s there could be some town where this happened. where you know Buffalo Bill could be moving around and and targeting this specific type. And I, I didn't think there was a false note in this film it's, at all, it, even though it introduces a character who in Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter is a supervillain, but everything else beyond Hannibal Lecter feels incredibly real world. But, but he and, wasn't as much of a supervillain in Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. as he became in Hannibal and um, maybe to a certain extent Red Dragon right. slash... But uh, I think what gets forgotten is that the movie's not about Hannibal Lecter. No. In fact, I still to this day take issue with Anthony Hopkins getting Best Actor for that. It's clearly it's a supporting short, role. Uh, yeah, it's, it's short clearly performance. clearly a supporting role, but they loved it so much they gave him Best Actor. Yeah. But the movie's not about him. In fact, it's, it's about not the, even the best performance in the movie. It's about Clarice, Clarice Starling. Starling. Yes. Jodie Foster is so good. And everybody seems to forget this. Uh, the other I, thing is... Yeah, I haven't. I, Ted, uh, Ted Levine, playing yes. Buffalo Bill, is playing a character who is probably much more close to what an authentic psychopath would look like mm-hmm. than anything Hannibal Lecter or, or Anthony Hopkins brings. I love the movie. I think I would just fall back on where I started about this. Is it's, I think its impact has been so wide that its own effectiveness has started to become diminished. Mm. Uh, that's just unfortunate. Yeah. That's just something that happens because of, you know, the hundreds of movies that piggybacked it, right? In mm-hmm. 1990, it was amazing. And they didn't see it coming. For some reason, this didn't look on, good on paper. Anthony Hopkins was not the first person no, they approached. Michelle Pfeiffer turned it down. Yeah. yeah. She didn't have to audition. It was just offered to her. It was getting, yeah. Yeah. She just said no. It's yeah. too icky. I'm sure she kicks herself to this day. But Foster is so smart. She's always been smart with her choices. But she's amazing was, in the movie. And yeah, I think it's her best performance in the movie. And I said about it. We'll, we'll talk about it with the review. But that scene of recognition between her and Ted Levine <sighs> is one of the oh, most amazing so scenes. But it's so creepy. I mean, it is. Yeah. I feel like I'm in the room there. And it's like, what What do you do now? Yeah. What do you do now? I mean, it just. To me for years and years it's worked and I knew it was a very standard choice you know I, I could go through here and be a little bit more creative and pick a movie like The Addiction but right. in my heart it, it had to be The Silence of the Lambs and I think I, I knew this one that's not the a, beginning it's not a controversial pick I mean no. I, where did I put it I'm trying to remember in seventh place oh, fifth place fifth place so that's, yeah. that's not bad yeah uh, L- lumped with seven so yeah. my one and two yeah. were your tie for fifth so so in my number one place, I mean, you're not going to really be mad at me, but uh, it's another divisive picture. People either love it or hate it, but I'm going to finish where you started and say, for me, the scariest movie of the 1990s was The Blair Witch Project. Okay. Um, 
I had the same experience you did. I got to see the longer VHS version mm-hmm, of it, mm-hmm. and it was kind of ours for nine months until it finally hit theaters. Um, but it was a forward-thinking horror movies in the mm-hmm. '90s, and the '90s, for the most part, was looking over its shoulder, uh, you know, or, or else saying, "What's popular? Scream's popular. Let's be Scream. What's popular? Silence of the Lambs is popular. Let's be Silence of the Lambs." Mm-hmm. Blair Witch Project just completely flipped the script. Everything that people knew that you needed to do to make a successful horror movie, they did the opposite. No stars. No monster. Mm-hmm. Just ideas. Mm-hmm. Found footage perspective, I mean, a lot of people just dismiss the genre. Again, I've always felt that with the found footage, it's sort of... It's a it's a, a greeting halfway between what imagination the filmmakers bring to it mm-hmm. and what imagination... The audience brings to it. Mm-hmm. If you're expecting to be spoon-fed by a movie, then it's not going to work for you. If you're going to be in your phone while the movie's on, well, you're not really watching the no. movie, and don't blame the movie. Yep. But if you buy in to Blair Witch Project, I think it's the scariest movie of the '90s. If you don't, it's tedious and frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think some people got there, but I, I was, I, I, I disagree with anybody who says it. It is because at that particular time, and maybe it's just an advantage of of living and being like fully aware. I'm a movie geek at that particular time. It was one of the most ambitious film openings, and uh, they and we all made these home movies. Yeah, and it looks so authentic, but yet I mean there were some things in there. It's like okay, really, but but that came from. Like multiple screenings, I actually thought when when you agreed to let me do this one, I thought it was going to be much much higher on my list. But then I started thinking about balancing some things out and like, oh, I think this is a better film. Maybe it's not as scary a film. But Blair Witch, again, in the way I first experienced it, in the the way you first experienced it, was just terrifying. Yeah. And even just the thought that, well, maybe this could have happened. Maybe this really did happen some, to some people. Um, it was great. And I, I don't think the, the found footage horror movies of the 21st century yeah. have complete... Some, some are good. Some are really awful. Um, and it, I think it's been, it's, it's been overdone now. Is any corner of the horror genre, and I've said this before, I keep repeating myself, there's thousands of slasher movies. Most mm-hmm. of them suck. Yeah. There's thousands of monster movies. Most of them suck. Mm-hmm. There's thousands of found footage movies now. Most of them suck. But everyone's willing to dismiss found footage because most of them suck. And I think that is really limiting and dumb. Uh, Here's the thing. In 2008, I think it was 2008, Cloverfield came out. Mm -hmm. And everyone was just knocking, oh, this is an amazing movie. They did all of their, uh, almost all of their advertising online. Yeah. And uh, did this viral market thing. Yeah. uh, Releasing little snippets of the movies or little promotional scenes of the movie all over the place. The whole movie was like a Godzilla disaster movie, all contained in this first-person camera, yeah. which we're locked into for the entire movie, and in the end, everybody kind of ends up dead and squished, mm-hmm. and everyone lost their minds about what a brilliant movie that was. And that was so many years, nine that years was after. 2008. Yeah, nine years that after. Was nine years after, after yeah. Blair Witch, and it is Blair Witch, beat mm-hmm. for beat, mm-hmm. even from how it was promoted to the story that is being yeah. told. Yeah. I'm not even saying that Cloverfield's shitty. But I'm saying there are people who will go out of their way to say what a great movie Cloverfield is, 
and they will dismiss Blair Witch, and I don't understand that. Yeah. I don't understand well, that. It's, it's like praising Saw, but criticizing The Silence of the Lambs. Right. Uh, we wouldn't have as many found footage movies as we do today if not for Blair Witch, and I'm sorry if that's a problem for you, but I don't hate found footage movies. In fact, it's... I mean, people say that maybe it was hinted at started in the late 60s, early 70s with a few of these experimental films, but it was popularized and legitimized by the Blair Witch Project. And other than maybe the mockumentary, it's the only new sort of subgenre mm-hmm. of film that has sort of sprouted its head yeah. while we've been into film. So that alone, I think, also makes it very interesting. And again, I can't underwrite the story being told here, the history of the Blair Witch, all of this stuff is very richly imagined. It's not the presentation. They don't have presentation. I, I will defend the actors. A lot of people think the acting sucks. I disagree. I think that the acting is very, very genuine. But, it is. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how improvised it was. Mostly, about 90% yeah. improvised. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I believe it. I mean, there's a lot of people like, they're screaming. Yeah. And they're losing their voices from the screaming, which you might argue is kind of bad acting. But in Authentic. that situation with these people, if this actually happened, people would be freaking out. They'd be yelling at each other. They would be smoking cigarettes and getting into fights. And I mean, it's it's kind of like cabin fever that they experience, but in the outdoors. Yeah. Um, and it, it, no, it is a very freaky concept. And so I, I don't I don't fault your choice as much as I'm giving you a hard time about your number two. Um, and you and you gave me a hard time about my I think uh, number, number five. Number five, and, and I think a bit with number four too, with Cape Fear. But I, I, oh, no, I, I, I will definitely. I take more issue with uh, with Lost Highway than Cape Fear being yeah. on the list. But again, I've made it clear in the past. Mm-hmm. Lynch and I don't always get along. Yeah. For the record, I gave uh, uh, Razorhead a mention in the '70s too. So I, I won't dismiss him. I will. I always want to be impressed by David Lynch. I just very rarely am. Mm-hmm. And you're not alone. There's critics that absolutely hate him. And yeah. Roger Ebert was one of them. As much as I admire Roger Ebert, if Lynch released a movie, um, it was going to get one star until. Mm-hmm. And still, I think the the straight story came out, which was not a Lynchian film at all, even though he put some weird stuff in there, yeah. which worked well. And I think he finally, with Mulholland Drive, came around to to liking or appreciating what Lynch was did in a, in a truly Lynchian film. Well, I guess he's lucky he didn't live long enough for Inland Empire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop it. <laughs> Okay, so I just wanted to talk about some honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. Here's a few things that I did consciously. I just decided to not do TV movies for this list. Yeah. So none of like The Stand or mm-hmm. the It, even though mm-hmm. only half of it is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great HBO thriller called Citizen X that yes. I could have easily put on this list. Yeah. I just didn't. Uh, but definitely check that out. Um, I wanted to shout out to Flatliners and Cube, which you did include on your yep. list. Uh, I thought about putting Darkman slash The Crow as sort of like the oh, okay. R- R-rated, uh, you know, comic mm-hmm. book movies. It's funny, every time an R-rated comic book movie comes out, it's like, oh man, Deadpool's coming out. They've never made an R-rated <laughs> comic book movie before. Fuck yes, they have. Most they of have, them yeah. Yeah. Go, go watch fucking The Spawn again and tell me how excited you are for an R-rated <laughs> comic book movie. <laughs> Uh, heartbreaking to leave off the list because especially the first time I saw them in the theaters I did find them scary, thrilling movies but in the end 
I guess I just dismissed them as more fantasy sci-fi. Jurassic Park, and even to a lesser extent, Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Okay. Uh, I, I love those movies. Dinosaurs eat people. Mm-hmm. I, like, I kind of wanted to put them on the list, but then where do I put it and what do I t- take off for that? Another made-for-television movie called Cast a Deadly Spell. Oh, I haven't Either, heard of that. Uh, uh, Fred Ward plays this detective, uh, Lovecraft, in a 1950s Los Angeles, and it's like a Roger Rabbit aesthetic, only instead of cartoons, oh, there yeah. uh, gremlins exist, zombies exist, psychics and vampires exist. It's just all part of the world, and he has to solve a murder case in this world. It was made for HBO, Fred Ward, Julian Moore, Clancy Brown. Oh, I really, really yeah. like it, but uh, it's hard to get your hands on, and it was made I, for I think I've heard, heard of it. I didn't recognize the title, but... I've always had a soft spot for uh, arachnophobia. Um, I liked Aft Pupil, but I think that compromised the book a little bit too much. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, Ringu, which you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and a... uh, I want to say French. Maybe it's not French, but uh, speaking of sort of a found footage, it's called The Man Bites Dog. Oh, yeah. I considered that, yes. Following around this spree killer, but not stopping him Mm -hmm. while he's doing his business. It's uh, disturbing, but undeniably effective. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So those were the ones that were... Oh, The Relic, I wanted to mention. Oh, yes. It's a guilty pleasure monster movie, but I couldn't put it on the list. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is very well made, but I felt the flaws kind of tipped it. So, yeah. yeah. Those are my special mentions. Yeah, Yeah, and there are a few that I mentioned in there. I mean, I, I if if I felt like I could have made room for the stand in there, I I might have. I, I I'm not sure I would have for it, just based on the last time I saw it. Right. Recognizing how dated um, some things if are. If I could in there. give it the prize to chapter uh, one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the the children's part is is much much better. I I kept my honorable mentions, you know, to a little bit more of a. I tried to condense them down to five here. Right. I mean, I, I do have a list of, and I mentioned like some of the ones you mentioned. I was like, oh, shoot, yeah, I yeah. Should, should have. So I, I put those on the record there. Uh, movie that I, I think is very clever and has some scares in it, but just wasn't, couldn't make the top 25 is The Devil's Advocate. Um, oh, no, really? Yeah, you don't like The Devil's Advocate, uh, I could tell. I, I, love, would, I love Pacino as the devil. I like some of the like the horrifying aspects of the Maybe as a miscarriage. So Maybe, <laughs> personally. <laughs> Another one I wrestled with, whether I can call it a horror movie or not, I, I almost felt like I should have a David Cronenberg film on your existence. Right. Um, I rewatched it last weekend to see where it would fit and it just just couldn't quite make the cut and I'm just not sure if it's horror or if it's science fiction but it's not to bash the Matrix again same year as the Matrix and much more clever to me yeah and Canadian which I also like Um, and Jude Law before he became Jude Law is in there yeah yeah. and I love Jennifer Jason Leigh I mean anytime she's in a movie I'm I'm excited you know she almost played Alabama in True Romance I believe it. Can yeah. you imagine how cool that would have been? Oh, well. Oh, that would have been good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think Tarantino wanted to work with her for years, but finally the Hateful Eight happened, which was good. Uh, I, I mentioned The Frighteners was was uh, was uh, one of my runners-up. Um, an ambitious, and to me when we're, you know, um, we're in, an ambitious film um, by Clive Barker that I liked a little bit more, Lord of Illusions. 
Um, I think it had a few more scares in it. I, I was willing to go along on that journey a little bit more. Um, than, say, for instance, Nightbreed. Yeah, the Nightbreed, <laughs> you know, unfortunately. New Nightmare I mentioned. Um, and when I, I rewatched and has the Hitchcock influence, but it's also because it's Brian De Palma, and I almost wanted to have a De Palma film on here, and you're looking pained, as I say, Raising Kane. Really? Okay. Yeah. But it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not great, but I, I think it was trying to do something. Hey, you just won a lot of points with Beckman. Beckman's a big raising kid. He loves, man. yeah. I, I, I like John Lithgow and will make excuses for him. And I like De Palma and mm-hmm. will make excuses for him. That movie has too many dream sequences and too much. Oh, dream sequence within a dream sequence. But yeah. that's consistent with De Palma. I mean, he's. <laughs> But He's again, done this. That's the thing, though. There'll be De Palma movies, which I just think that's amazing, and there'll be De Palma movies that will say "fuck you." But uh, this was closer to Snake Eyes than to Carrie, personally. <laughs> but the setups. There's something in each of his movies. He has a setup that no other filmmaker will. And the climax of this movie is there will be is very ambitious sequences that are just dizzyingly well directed. Mm-hmm. It's just the script. Well, and I think uh, the last shot is is reasonably horrific. I mean. Well, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so those are my uh, extra shout-outs. There it was, you guys. (laughs) The top 25 horror movies of the 1990s. I'm sure people will have things to say on this. Uh, I'm sure that there's regrets on both sides, and I'm sure Beckman is going to want to you know, have his voice heard. <laughs> what we missed and what we did not. You can send your feedback to review at gmail.com. I'll deal with the best. Thank you guys so much for listening to Ranking Review. Uh, big love to all of our listeners, and big thanks to Lee Beckman, who I know wishes he could have been here for this episode. Uh, you're my boy. Uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to Ranking Review.